Evan Hines, co-founder and CEO of Climate Base. Welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here back in your uh, your home base of Berkeley. Yes. I understand you you grew up around these parts. I did. Uh, my, my dad worked for the city of Berkeley right around the corner. My mom works for the state doing genetic disease screening research. And she had an office on the other side of the block. So I am like... You know, I, I feel like I'm very much at home here, uh, even though I've never been to this office before. So good. Yeah, thank good. you for having me. Yeah. Pleasure to have you. Uh, why don't we get started? You just tell us a little bit about Climate Base. Yeah. So, um, well, Climate Base is a, is a hiring platform uh, and community for professionals and organizations focused on addressing climate change. Um, and, you know, we, we exist uh, to answer a critical question uh, that must be answered um, for the millions of people who would love to get paid to work on climate. And that question that we answer is, what organizations are working on climate and who's hiring? I see. And um, how, did you, how did you get into this, uh, this business? How, what's, what's the founding story? Yeah, so I think it starts, um, well, gosh, I, I, guess, I guess it depends on how far back we want to go. I would say the the founding story would really begin with my own job search. Um, so my background was in startups and technology. I worked in I worked in big tech for a number of years. I then transitioned into the startup space, um, got really lucky and broke, in, broke into like the early, early stage startup world. I joined this company called Make School. They were a uh, ed- education company uh, that had just graduated YC, Y Combinator, when I approached them. Um, and uh, and so, you know, after three years at Make School and then a, a short stint doing some recruiting work at, for another startup after that, um, and then having taken off some time after both of those experiences to reflect on what do I really want to do next? What do I really care about uh, as I think about this next chapter of my career? I realized that I just couldn't think of anything more important to dedicate my time and energy towards um, than, than climate change. And as a climate job seeker, just beginning to think about what that might look like for myself, what it might look like for me to transition into working in climate, it, you know, of course, I wanted to immediately know, well, who's who's hiring for someone that has the kind of, you know, interesting, well, <laughs> the the uh, the variety of sort of backgrounds and skill sets that I have. And um, I found that process to be really challenging. You know, major hiring platforms like LinkedIn and Indeed and others just simply aren't good at answering that critical question, what orgs are working on climate and who's hiring? And my experience there, um, you know, I, I noticed that I was not able to, uh, it, you know, finding these organizations um, on these platforms, one would think that you just type in a keyword like climate or something like that, and you'd be able to find all these organizations or at least their jobs. Um, and that doesn't work well. Uh, you know, you, you can find some, but it's it's really just the, the tip of the iceberg. And, and there's so many more organizations and so many, you know, more job opportunities at these organizations um, that are just not easily surfaceable or like you could say discoverable on these, you know, very large uh, platforms that are designed not for just climate companies, but really all organizations around the world. So I found that these platforms just don't work well from a search perspective. They don't really... Uh, have enough curation to be able to solve this either with filters. And so that that was like an immediate thing that stood out to me. Um, and I started thinking like, well, I can't be the only person out there who would love to get paid to work on climate. But then, you know, I, I started thinking a little bit more about it. And I realized, too, that, 
Well, if it's hard for people who are mission driven and want to go all in with, you know, all in on a climate career, if it's hard for those people, the mission driven talent to identify where those jobs are, then what does that mean for the organizations? And how much of a bottleneck uh, or, or really a, a missed opportunity is that for them when it comes to hiring? You know, so again, at the time, I was really just a, a climate job seeker. I, I hadn't really dove into thinking about this space from the perspective of a founder. And as a climate job seeker, that all, all this was in the back of my mind, right, as I was going through this beginning of this journey. Um, I started putting together my own Airtable spreadsheet type of thing of listing out a bunch of different organizations that were working in climate. And I was having a really hard time classifying them. Yeah. Uh, around that time, I was, you know, visiting my friend, my best friend from childhood, Matt, uh, who who's a regenerative ranching person. And, uh, you know, he he works in the regenerative ag and ranching space. And, um, you know, he was one of the people who got me really interested in thinking about this stuff in the first place. So I was visiting him and I was like, hey, you know, I'm building out this spreadsheet and it's all these cool organizations. Uh, and I'm kind of struggling to sort of figure out, you know, well, which organizations are actually working on climate and which ones maybe are working on things that are related, but maybe not directly so. Uh, and how do I like classify them? And, you know, we we're having this kind of meta level conversation about all these orgs that are doing this kind of work. And he was like, oh, you might take a look at this. And he hands me this book. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of a field uh, at a farm in Northern California and, uh, you know, in, in a trailer, literally. And, you know, so I'm, I'm flipping through the pages of this book in this trailer. That book is called Drawdown by Project Drawdown. And the book, you know, for those who are not familiar with Project Drawdown's work, they this book that they released in 2017, was, which was a New York Times bestseller uh, that year, um, you know, edited and, and, and sort of, I guess, authored in some ways by Paul Hawken, you know, famous environmentalist in this space. The book reads like a directory of climate solutions. It's, it's a coffee table style book, really beautiful imagery, really beautiful storytelling. And it, and it classifies and sort of in, it, in its initial version, it ranked all the top 100 solutions to addressing climate change. And so I'm going through it. It's like sectors, energy, transportation, food and ag, and then all these different solutions across all these different sectors. And immediately I was like, this is that framework that I was missing. And I also wanted to, you know, not only use that kind of framework in this catalog, in, in this giant spreadsheet of organizations that I was you know, building out. Um, but, but it also, you know, I wanted to, I mean, I was learning about climate solutions in this, in, in uh, Drawdown's work that I was just totally unfamiliar with. Uh, and I think, until they released this report, you know, many people, including myself, we knew that clean energy is a climate solution. And, you know, and, and that other things like, you know, electrifying transportation, these things help us decarbonize. Um, but I didn't know that there was like a ton, a ton of stuff in there that I was just totally unfamiliar with. So I wanted to then, you know, answer the question, well, what organizations are working across all of these really interesting sectors and solutions and who's hiring? Getting back to that core question that I've, I was answering. Um, Anyway, so that was all the background. Um, you know, I was building out the spreadsheet with my brother, Jesse, who's now one of my two co-founders. Jesse and Justin are my co-founders. And um, we, we thought, okay, well, maybe, we, maybe this spreadsheet that we're using for ourselves as job seekers, both of us wanted to work in this space, maybe this is useful to other people. Maybe we can prove that out and kind of create a hypothesis uh, and, and test that hypothesis by organizing a climate job fair. 
And so I would say like, you know, all, all of this stuff is background. The climate job fair is really where things I would say like really picked up for us. And we knew that there was something here that was worth dedicating a lot more time towards. Um, we had no emailing list. We had no website, no brand, but we were like, okay, well, we know these companies now we've identified them. So let's reach out to them in the Bay area and see who might want to be involved in a in-person job fair. What I also, what also got me really excited about this is uh, about the idea of doing a climate job fair was that no one had ever done a climate job fair at the time. Keep in mind, this is mid 2019. So, you know, we've known about climate change for gosh, what, like over a hundred years now, I think. Right. And, um, uh, I think like 150, maybe now I'm not <laughs> my climate history. Uh, I, I'm not a climate historian. Let me, let me throw that out there. Although I, I would like to be, I'm an aspiring one. Um, and, uh, you know, so we were kind of shocked that it, like, you know, according to the internet, at least no one had ever done this. No one had ever thought, okay, let's do a job fair, but for climate work. And so we were really thrilled about the idea of doing that and being the first to do it. Um, so we put out the word, we got about 18 organizations to sign on board. Uh, some of those organizations I'll add have now gone on to become like some of the more notable startups in the space, such as WeaveGrid. Um, another one is a uh, gradient at the time they were operating under a different name. They, had, you know, they were still in the labs over at cyclotron road, which is now mm. known as activate. Oh yeah. Uh, and we also got a uh, project drawdown. Actually, we got uh, crystal Chiselle from their team, uh, to actually come give like a little keynote and presentation. So we, we were really excited and we were, we thought that this would be cool, cool enough to get 200 people maybe to show up, uh, to our surprise that day, about 600 people showed up, showed up. And it was kind of the best problems you could have for a first time event organizer that has no mailing list or brand or anything like that, had never done one of these ourselves before, right? Uh, we had too many people and the, the, the vibes were hot and, and kind of like a little overwhelming. I mean, I can show you the photos if I haven't shown you them before, but like when you see the photos, you know, people were literally shoulder to shoulder you know, in various places in this large space that we had rented in downtown San Francisco. Um, if this was during COVID or the onset of COVID, it for sure would have been like a super spreader event. Like mm. it was, it was just, it was awesome. It was awesome in the sense that there were so many people who were eager to be there. Um, we heard from job seekers that day that some folks had drove down from Southern Oregon to attend the event. Others had driven up from San Diego to attend the event. I mean, I, I have, I, we did not expect that. It was in San Francisco. It was in San Francisco. I see. Yeah. You know, and th I mean, that's a long drive. Like you have to be really motivated. And sure. um, so that, you know, the number of people there that day and and hearing about, you know, all, all the different people and what it took for them to all get there. Um, that was definitely a light bulb moment for us. But I think what really did it was hearing from the organizations that were there. And, um, you know, what they what they told us in so many words was this was the best hiring event they'd ever been to because they were finally reaching an audience of people, meeting a whole you know, community of people who were attending that day that were genuinely interested in the work that they're doing. Uh, whereas in, you know, at other hiring events that they had been to, they felt like they got sort of drowned out in the noise of, of all the other companies doing stuff. And also that the audience of people uh, weren't there for a climate job, they were just there for any job. So you yeah. kind of get, you know, you kind of get people who are like, Oh, climate, sure, whatever. But you're hiring for sales. Great. Yeah, I can do that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you don't, these orgs want to get someone who's really mission driven. Right. Um, so, you know, when I asked them, of course, on the spot when they were giving us this feedback and then you know, and afterward and, and email, 
I was like, well, what's it like for you on the, you know, online? What is your experience hiring online? Are those same challenges that you express that you have when you go to non-climate job fairs? Do you also feel like that applies to your experience hiring on platforms like LinkedIn and Indeed and others? And, you know, all of them, of course, said yes. I mean, you know, we LinkedIn is for everyone. It's not for climate specifically. So it's the same kind of issues there. Right. Um, and that completely, uh, you know, that that completely aligned with what my hypothesis, what I was hypothesizing around that what this, you know, what these challenges for job seekers, how these challenges for job seekers uh, translate over to being a challenge for the organizations doing this critical work of developing and scaling climate solutions in this unreasonably short amount of time that we have right now. And so um, that that was the moment at which we, me and Jesse realized, okay, there's, there's something here and we need to pull on this thread further. And so... So that was your early proof point of, of, of hey, there's there might be a demand here. Yeah. Um, and I can tell you anecdotally, having been involved in the climate tech world um, for the last like 15 years or so, um, I feel it as well. Mm. Um, but I, I'm just curious, have you have you since that event, have you found like third party data of, of any sort that shows um, this general trend towards, you know, an interest in climate or, um, or, or any internal data in terms of, you know, the interest you've garnered? Well, our own data, so starting there, our own data is always going to be skewed because it's, uh, you know, the number of users that we've been able to attract, um, it's, it's representative more of how, how well and effective we've been about putting ourselves out there and making ourselves known. Right. Um, so our, our own data won't, doesn't shine too much of a light on that. But when you look at studies from like Pew Research, Pew Research puts out a huge amount of research and, and, and uh, literature on climate anxiety, on desire for climate action, on, uh, you know, on on willingness to change lifestyles. Uh, you know, they, they've done they've done an incredible amount of work on this. And, and a lot of universities, you know, study this topic as well. It's a, it's a really interesting topic. Um, what the data shows is, you know, by by generate generation over generation, uh, concern around climate change and desire to take action, meaningful action in their own in people's individuals' lives. That when you look at each generation, it increases dramatically. Um, I think it's like it's like increasing by you know over seventy percent uh, in terms of like you know what what you would see in the responses indicating that someone is you know highly climate concerned or. Uh, willing to take action. And so when you look at um, the, the the exact figures are escaping me right now. I, uh, you, you need you need like an assistant so that we can have them like look up stats for us on the spot. That'd be that'd be wonderful. Um, Come but, uh, coming soon. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, if you need someone, I might be able to help you with that. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> I bet you there's a lot of kids at UC Berkeley that would love to work on a climate podcast. Just yeah. saying. Yeah, um, good point. So, you know, but but at a high level, what you see today is that uh, among millennials and Gen Z, it's it's over over fifty percent, uh, and this is like you know removing any any sort of uh, bias or segmentation around political affiliation, right, mm -hmm. within the United States. But within the United States, at least, over fifty percent of Gen Z, uh, and I hope I'm getting this stat right, but I believe it's over fifty percent of Gen Z now um, is self-identifies as highly alarmed when it comes to climate change. Uh, which is like the, the furthest on the spectrum. Um, and, you know, and, and I think it's something like 68% is highly alarmed or very concerned. Um, 
And, you know, it's single digit numbers now at this point of, of Gen Z in the United States that doesn't think climate exists or it isn't a problem. So the, the, that's a dramatic shift from what we've seen with previous generations. Sure. Um, but what's really interesting, too, is like when you look at so now thinking about our own platform, right? Th those are the trends for the youngest generations out there, right? And I'm sure Gen Alpha is going to be even higher of a concern level and desire for action. But when you look at the users on Climbase so far, it, it doesn't follow that. It's not like we only have Gen Z. In fact, the, the majority of our users where we actually have demographic info on this, um, the average years of experience is between five to 10 years or, or 15 years, you know, depending on sort of how you uh, create these segmented answers. But um, it, so at least with climate base, uh, I think we're proving that there is a very significant portion of professionals out there um, that are either, you know, that that could be really early in their career, maybe straight out of college, but also looking at senior level professionals who have maybe made their money or or maybe they haven't yet, but they're looking for some kind of impact and deeper purpose in their day to day lives that they're not going to get from just, you know, choosing to get an electric car over over a gas car um, or or choosing to, you know, maybe fly less, um, you know, choosing to eat less or no red meat or other or other, you know, uh, uh, you know, agricultural products that um, that maybe aren't so good for the world. Um, don't get me wrong, all these things are good. We need all of it. Uh, but I think people intuitively understand that um, while all those things can be impactful, certainly at the aggregate, right? When if everyone is, it's like voting, right? Th then it really does matter when you think about it from that perspective. But as an individual, I think most people understand intuitively that nothing is going to be as impactful as them choosing to actually make this the focus of their career. Because how do we all spend most of our waking hours throughout our lives? Most of us spend that time working, right? So, you know, it's it's like, um, you know, if you're doing eight hours a day, uh, you know, minimum, <laughs> if you're at a startup, uh, of, of work at an organization that's focused on climate, uh, you're going to have a hell of a lot more impact from just that alone compared to like all of, all of these behavioral changes that are, that I think get a lot of attention, um, probably because there's a lot of marketing and, and dollar opportunity, uh, you know, from all the companies that are creating better consumer consumer alternatives. Um, but, uh, you know, but this this topic of working on climate, I think, is, is still sort of new in people's minds. I think if you ask people, you know, a long time ago, um, you know, what kind of people work in climate, they would say well, climate scientists and maybe reporters or uh, professors or researchers. Um, they probably wouldn't think business development professionals or software engineers right. uh, or marketing professionals or HR and, and recruiters, right? So, um, so you know, I think we're kind of, uh, I mean, and, and, and it's not like these things didn't, these opportunities didn't exist before climate base existed. Of course they did. But we've just been able to shine a light on those opportunities and, um, and you know, and, and provide this uh, public good for people out there that are, you know, Maybe they've been thinking about this, or maybe they're just hearing about it for the first time, but people who are really intrigued by the idea of going all in on climate and actually getting paid to work on this challenge. Right, right. I, I might have shared this story with you, but when I was like in my early 20s, I was living in Denver and I was I was actually working, you know, in energy performance contracting and uh, but I wanted more, mm. right? I wanted to do more. I wanted to like, 
you know, get involved with policy. So I actually called up the city of Denver because they had all these new like climate initiatives. I was like, hey, can I just like come and help out like, you know, a couple hours a week? And they were like, what do you? How'd you get our number? Like they were so confused. They were like, "That's our job. Like, what are you doing?" Um, so, so I do recognize that that like desire. Um, so, so you started the. I mean, you started going down this path. You said in 2019, yeah. um, things have changed a lot, right? Yeah. You had the pandemic, and then you have kind of this new slowdown, um, and for the first time, tech companies having layoffs. How has that affected, you know, both the the supply side, the employers, as well as the demand side, the uh, the job seekers. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, the pandemic shifted a lot of things for people um, and and organizations. I think um, when the pandemic hit, uh, there was a lot of uncertainty in the job market, and I, I think there, if I recall correctly, I believe there were also mass layoffs right in the beginning because companies were freaking out. You know, they're like, hold on, this is gonna you know, we, we got we we got to become really lean as organizations in order to weather this storm. Um, you know, supply chain, supply chain, and you know, all, all sorts of things were really messed up as a result, and still are. Um, and and then of course there was crazy hiring booms right throughout the pandemic period, and um, <clears throat> and uh, and and so you know that was the case for climate tech as well. I mean. A huge amount of the funding that these companies uh, have gotten over the past couple of years came during the pandemic, right? Like a lot of companies were raising, a lot of climate tech companies were raising during the pandemic. And so uh, the pandemic for employers created, you know, for climate companies, there's, you know, while there may have been in the beginning a bit of a pause or uncertainty around what the pandemic would mean, a lot of them, a lot of them just like went all out on hiring because they had just raised and they were growing and scaling their teams. Uh, What another really interesting factor is that they, many of them, um, recognize that actually not only do they may, you know, not really have a choice when it comes to potentially doing things remotely, but that in, if you're a climate company or even just a startup, you're going to have a big advantage if you if you can hire remote because you're going to be able to cast a much wider net and be able to get more people versus if you're you know looking for the same role but only with you know only for people who are willing uh, and and who are willing to work in person and are living in you know say. I don't know, like some random, uh, you know, town outside of Boston, random example, right? But um, so so that that's like what we saw on the employer side. For job seekers, I think the pandemic was also a, a big shift in, in, t- in terms of a number of things that are related, uh, very closely related to job seeking. So professional networking, you know, developing your community, growing your community, building more pr- connections with people um, is you know, about how it's roughly, depending on the industry, but across all industries, it's roughly represents about half of all hires are made through networks and and professional connections. So a lot of people had no choice but to go online for those communities and for being able to build new professional connections. Um, You know, we've seen, you know, there was a a lot of uh, sort of renewed interest in ed tech companies that were coming up with novel, pure, purely online experiences, uh, you know, to, to help people network and, and gain skills and, you know, be inspired. And, and so that, that was a really interesting thing that we saw people more willing than ever to go online for community and education. Um, and I also think that, and perhaps this is the most important thing I, I could have said, and I probably should have started with this. I think the pandemic fundamentally shifted the way that people think about their lives, particularly when it comes to work. Uh, you know, the great resignation was the reflection of that, you know, all these people who are employed, 
choosing to basically leave their job because they are just feeling like they're either not growing enough in their career with whatever company they were at, or uh, they felt like the work that they were doing just wasn't inspiring to them anymore. And I think that makes sense. Like, I think if we, you know, I, I mean, if I was at that point, I was already working on climate base and, you know, we were, we launched mid 2020, right in the middle of the pandemic uh, as a website. Um, but, you know, had I not been doing that, I think I would have come to the same conclusion that I want to work in climate as a result of, as a result of COVID, because it, you know, I think it, it would have done what it did for many people, which is kind of shake you to your foundations and, and, and you realize what is, what, what is at your foundation? And I think, you know, a fundamental need that people have in their lives is, is a sense of purpose. And we used to get that through religion. Well, there's less religious people today than ever before. Uh, we might have used to get it through political parties or other kinds of things like that. And I think people are, um, you know, maybe feeling like a two party system doesn't quite capture who they are in their individual uh, selves and their own views. And so I think people are looking at causes such as climate change as an opportunity um, to to uncover and, and really kind of reclaim that sense of purpose that they may that they may be missing. Uh, so, you know, I think I think a lot of people it, it, was, it was this really interesting sort of uh, convergence of two different two main big, you know, all these different factors, but two big ones being people wanting more meaning in their careers or maybe just like shifting away from what they were doing for the past 10 years altogether and therefore looking for new opportunities and being open to new opportunities and all these climate companies having just raised and looking to scale their teams rapidly. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there was 30 billion of growth capital that was raised in 2021 that was funding a lot of those, you know, larger companies that where they could double their employee base. Um, yep. So let me ask you this. Um, I listened to an interview where you, you talked a little bit about um, the concept of greenwashing and purpose washing. Mm. Um, to what extent are you the arb like does do you and climate base need to be the arbiter of like what is a real climate company versus what is a pretend climate company and how do you manage that that challenge it's actually a really challenging challenge um we do feel like i mean so so that is core to our value prop to our users right job seekers is that we are pre-curating we are pre-filtering, we are pre-identifying these organizations uh, so that they don't have to do what I did when I was climate job seeking, which is, you know, look at all these random companies and try to make sense of who's doing what and which ones are climate, which ones aren't, right? Um, so so that that responsibility does fall upon us as, as the nature of what we do. We try to, you know, I would say one of the most valuable, um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of, of drawdown, um, you know, what the original team did and what the new team is, you know, continuing to do now is is, is that they're, and, and now actually when you look at the IPCC's latest report, they have a solutions. I mean, it's very, very much focused on solutions. Um, and so, you know, that I would say is kind of started with Project Drawdown and now you see it reflected in the work of the IPCC and the UN. Um, that, that kind of research, um, we can, you know, we benefit from at climate base because these this is research that's saying, hey, these are this is what we need to do to to, to decarbonize our economy. Um, and and so we can, you know, go one step further and say, OK, well, here's the research and this is what this is the roadmap. 
So what organizations are working on these things and who's hiring? It does get challenging though at times because sometimes an organization um, might be working on, what's, what's an example I can think of? I mean, this, this actually came up uh, recently, uh, an organization working on electric aviation, but their first product that they, that they have in, in market is, uh, is you know, it's a, it's a, it's a plane, uh, unmanned, fully electric, um, that is used for primarily for agriculture uh, and primarily for spraying pesticides and, and other kinds of things on crops. Now, I am not an agricultural expert, um, but and and I and I fully recognize that there are or probably organic, you know, uh, alternatives to really horrible pesticides and you know other other pesticides that use things like you know naturally occurring fungi fungi as a way of mitigating uh, you know insect damage and all the all the spider venom yeah all, all different sorts of iterations on that totally and there you know there's probably some companies on climate base I mean I've, I think I've lost count at this point I can't keep track of them all but that are probably working on that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, but like on its surface level, if you're looking at their website, you know, you might just see a plane. I mean, their website is obviously designed for their customers who are probably also using their product, not necessarily, you know, not by necessity using damaging pesticides, but right. Um, but many of their customers, I am sure, are using pesticides that you probably wouldn't want to consume or have your kids consume, right? And so that's one of those tricky things where it's like the fundamental technology that's being developed um, could be a, you know, could be, uh, you know, a valuable uh, piece of this puzzle, the decarbonation puzzle, a uh, decarbonization puzzle, but maybe doesn't, uh, maybe might not be used in a way that seems um, obviously good and obviously impactful. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you do in those situations? Uh, and, you know, this is part of the reason why we still talk to every organization that joins our platform. You can't, you can create a client-based account, but you can't start posting jobs on client-based until you've, you know, onboarded with one of our team members. And that onboarding, part of the many reasons we do that is because we also want to make sure that if there are any questions about an organization joining our platform, that we have the opportunity of talking with someone from their team and better understanding, uh, you know, get a better understanding of what those issues are and, and how they view, you know, the, how, how they view whatever issue that might be. Um, you know, so that's one example. I mean, there's the the other, I think even more common thing is like, so, so the example I just talked about is, is like, what if an organization is developing some kind of technology that could be used uh, in a way that is climate positive or not, right? And that's tricky. But I think what's even more challenging is when we consider, um, emerging climate solutions, um, you know, such as direct air capture and other forms of carbon removal, uh, where, you know, I'm sure if you, you'll probably have a listener listening to this right now who's going to say he shouldn't even be using the term emerging climate solutions because a climate solution is something that should be, uh, you know, provable that it works and also scalable because we have to work within a, a time frame, a pretty narrow time frame here. So, you know, what is a feasible climate solution? Well, you know, I think there's another school of thought, which is um there might be emerging climate solutions and technologies that are not readily scalable, but at some point we're going to need to scale them. And therefore, um, those organizations developing these kinds of methodologies, um, these technologies that, that they, just because they, their technology maybe isn't totally scalable or even scalable at all today, uh, that it's not worth investing dollars and time into developing mm-hmm. for, the, for the sake of the future. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we used to feel a lot more hesitant about this. I feel like the conversation around some of this stuff, uh, there's a lot more public discourse that was negative and highly critical 
of some of these um, emerging climate solutions, technological solutions primarily. Mm. Uh, and I think the narrative has changed a little bit recently, not necessarily because these companies have been able to prove that their technologies are scalable and, and readily deployable. Uh, but I think <laughs> I think part of it is that the, the situation has gotten so dire that you know, the science is, is, is clear um, that we do, for example, need to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. We have to do it. Right. How we get there, we're not entirely sure. We know that nature-based solutions are a huge portion of that puzzle, 100%. Uh, we know that these things are, you know, th that we have scalable solutions today, um, but those alone aren't going to cover everything that we need to do. Uh, so I, I think that there's a, a certain open-mindedness now among perhaps some of the more climate purists of the world uh, because of this recognition that things are so bad uh, that, you know, we maybe should. If there's a willingness among investors to put money towards things like carbon removal technologies that, you know, perhaps that is worth doing um, because we're, we're, you know, we're not, we are not on the right path now anyway. Yeah. I don't fully understand their argument um, in that because everything is until it's until it's proven and scaled it's emerging and potentially scalable so i i don't fully understand i i mean i what i what i have seen is you know climate purists saying well carbon capture isn't the answer the answer is really this or or you know having people people having personal biases towards or against specific solutions but that gets really tricky because we're all we're all figuring it out. I mean, there could be there could be a breakthrough in carbon capture technology that makes nuclear fusion obsolete, or or vice versa. Right. Right. So how do you how do you call that? Right. Um, I I don't I don't know. I I mean I'm I'm a fan of like the all of the above kind of approach. Yeah, I think I think it's. Um, it's it's about looking at the timeline, um, and I I also and I've heard this from a number of like climate luminaries and, and really big thought leaders in, in private conversations I've had with them, um, where you know it's also this fear that the public is going to get distracted, and the public is going to get confused about what the low hanging fruits are that they should be that we as a society should be paying attention to and investing in, which I would agree with, with them. You know, I, I, I would not agree. Sorry, let me let me clarify. I would not agree with that concern. I think I think people are smarter than that. I think people can, you know, hold two thoughts in their head at the same time. One that we need to decarbonize by reducing emissions immediately. And that's that should be if we had to choose between two things to work on, that should be the one. Um, but that's not the case. We, we can walk and whistle at the same time. And I think that therefore people can understand that that is the case and also that at some point we're going to have to develop breakthrough technologies, breakthrough solutions that are not yet readily scalable or, or even fully developed today, um, you know, in the case of nuclear. Uh, but, but we're going to have to do at some point. And so we might as well get a jump start on that now. And I think a, a really good example of this is, um, I mean, you know, the term climate tech, I've heard that term be used to describe uh, all things in climate tech other than uh, renewable energy like solar and wind. And it's always confusing to me because yeah. like, uh, I'm pretty sure solar is climate, is it a technology and it's climate beneficial. So, and if you look at the growth curve of how effective solar has been, and this, this is a moment right now, by the way, um, 
where I really wish uh, our newsletter writer, uh, Julian, was with us because Julian is far like Julian knows his his stuff when it comes to this uh, in a way that I, I, I don't um, because I'm, I'm focused on a lot of things <laughs> at climate base. Um, but the, the growth curve of solar, uh, of its efficacy as a climate solution has been exponential. Um, and, you know, if you asked the most, uh, you know, if you asked advocates of solar in the 1950s and 60s, uh, how, you know, e even the biggest advocate, the biggest dreamer back then, how big is this going to get? I don't think any of them would have predicted it to be as scalable and as cheap as it is today. Um, so that that argument that, oh, this is not feasible in the future, or, you know, oh, this is not a real climate solution or, oh, this isn't this isn't something that we should be paying attention to right now, uh, to me, seems a little bit short sighted um, because we don't know what the breakthrough tomorrow could be. Yeah, exactly right. Um, tell me about the climate based fellows mm. fellowship. Yeah. Well, that that was a direct response to what we saw um, during the pandemic. Um, you know, I think there was. Uh, OK, so a couple of things happened leading up to the moment where we decided to explore this um, going way, way back. My background, again, you know, I spent three years working in ed tech and I learned a lot about cohort based education. Um, granted, we were doing everything in person. Uh, so this is, you know, kind of in a, in a pre Zoom being the norm that you know, th th this was before Zoom was like a normal way through which people learned. Um, so I, I was coming into this already with the experience of, uh, you know, a community manager, of a marketer, of a salesperson, of a, you know, start and when you're at a startup, you do all, all these things, right? Uh, of, you know, recruiter, I mean, um, uh, and, and an educator, you know, someone who was involved in an education business. Um, and we knew uh, intuitively when we were starting Climate Base that the opportunity to create programs that help people learn and build networks in this space, you know, job seekers or even people already working in this space, that we, we knew that there was something there. But, you know, we couldn't have predicted the pandemic. Um, so when the pandemic hit and, you know, again, we launched mid pandemic, we launched in mid 2020, uh, you know, with a website. Um, one of the things we noticed was that, again, people were going online for education, online for building networks, and, and that they were using uh, Zoom as a medium. They were using things like Slack and other sort of communication platforms as, as an alternative to a community platform. Um, and we were like, OK, well, we know that a lot of people get jobs through networking. Uh, we know that a lot of the people, because we survey our users, you know, they create accounts, we ask them questions, right? So, so we know that a lot of people on client base don't consider themselves to have a lot of climate expertise, but they're very mission driven. They, they want to learn, they want to network, they want to hear from leaders. And so we thought, okay, well, what if we created a program that helps fill that previously unmet need for community education and inspiration and the opportunity to work on projects and a bunch of other stuff that we bundle in? Um, so we... I, I was actually talking with my old, uh, my old CEO from from the education company I was at, and I was telling him like, yeah, I think there could be here something here around this. You know, what what do you think? And he was like, I don't know, just spin up a page and say you're doing it and see how many people apply. And I was like, right, okay, yeah, that that makes sense. We should probably do that. Uh, so we did that. Um, you know, low low risk kind of thing. Put it out there, make an announcement in our email, see what happens. Um, 
in the first six days, we had over a thousand people apply. And, you know, again, coming from an education background, I will say I never saw that with any of the software engineering programs that we were doing at Make School. I never saw that kind of crazy inbound excitement and interest from an audience. And at that time, our user base was, you know, I think we were in the, we we're hovering at around 10,000 monthly users. So like we had a really, you know, relative, I mean, at the time I felt really awesome about that. That was, you know, when you're just starting off 10,000 people using your website each month, that's pretty cool. You know, to put in, put in contrast today, in the last 30 days, we had nearly 250,000 people using climate base. So, you know, it's grown substantially in, in a relatively short amount of time. Mm-hmm. But to see that we got that interest was a signal that not only should we do it, but also that we probably should not be like half-assed in any way about how we set up and prepare for the program. That given the amount of interest, we cannot afford to do a small beta pilot thing that maybe goes well, maybe doesn't. That we that we know that this is something we should do and that we're going to treat this as a real endeavor, not an experiment. Mm-hmm. And so we spent literally the next year uh getting ready for that. You know, we, we partnered with um, some amazing instructors that we work with who built out a full curriculum covering, you know, on a week to week basis, each sector diving deep into solutions, thinking through the lens of uh, both technology and business and economics and politics, as well as climate justice and equity. Um, and it really built out like a full curriculum for a program. Um, we also, you know, put out the word to our network of organizations on our platform. We had hundreds of founders, investors, scientists, thought leaders, et cetera, uh, other climate, other types of climate leaders, politicians, um, you know, voluntarily uh, fill out a form saying that they would like to be a speaker in our program. So we, we took the next year to get really serious about this. We, we, I brought on someone from uh, my old you know, that I used to work with in my education days. Uh, that I'd worked with for three years, Jordan, incredible person, um, helps lead our fellowship program right now. Um, brought Jordan on the team because I knew I needed someone who really understood what it is that we're doing. Um, and we launched the program with a, with the first cohort in twenty uh, in, in in early twenty twenty two, early twenty twenty two. Yeah, um, time is weird in startup land. I'm like, has it been a year or has it been a day? I don't I know. know. Um, yeah. Know. So so about this time last year, we were starting our first cohort. In 2022, we ran two cohorts. Um, each, uh, the first one was 150. The second one was supposed to be 150. We accidentally accepted uh, more people than that. It was 170 at the end, which is fine. Um, uh, but you know, we've we've now to date we've had almost 5,000 people apply. So there, there's this huge, huge interest. And in, right now, as we're looking at cohort three, we're kind of thinking, okay, how can we scale this without losing the sense of intimacy and curation that we've been able to achieve in the first two cohorts, mm-hmm. which have earned a uh, you know average score from our fellows of 92 out of 100, uh, which is a remarkably high uh, you know high rated program considering that this is a, a new thing. So it's it's been an incredible thing, and what we've seen from our fellows who come from all walks of life. Some of them have, you know, many years of experience in climate and they're already working in climate and they're not even doing it as a job seeker. They're actually doing it because they just want to continue learning and continue growing their network. Hmm. Um, But, you know, we also have about, you know, roughly the other half of our fellows are doing it as climate job seekers. What we've seen is people use the program um, to not only launch into new careers, but even to start their own ventures. You know, like we, um, one of our, I was at an event in San Francisco. It was a startup showcase. I, I had no idea which startups were presenting. I walk in there. Uh, one of the startups that's presenting, they're doing an induction cook stove. Uh, the co-founder is one of our former fellows from most recent cohort. 
I was like, hey, what's up, Weldon? Good to see you. Like, wow, you're okay, amazing. Uh, and I think granted he had already been working on this, uh, you know, before joining the fellowship. Um, but just seeing how that program was able to help accelerate him even as an entrepreneur in the space was really cool. And then another person at that same event, um, Kelson, who was a fellow, uh, previously worked at Google uh, and Microsoft and Dropbox. So like a pretty accomplished professional uh, in software, um, you know, no, no real experience in climate, um, was able to take his experience in the fellowship, uh, not as a job seeker, but rather as a you know, idea stage founder and use it as a launch pad and a sandbox for him to kind of, you know, meet new people and test ideas and, and, and hypothesize uh, something worth working on, which is it's called Carbon Gauge. And they have an API for basically uh, basically making sense of all this really uh, sort of um, disparate data uh, that or that large corporates have when it comes to their um uh, to, when it comes to their sustainability efforts. And, and mm. it's an API that actually takes all this different kinds of data and it makes sense of it so that you don't need consultants to kind of like do all this data cleanup in order to make it workable mm. for these companies like uh, Watershed uh, and, and, and other carbon accounting management platforms. So anyway, I'm getting really in the weeds on these two examples, but, but I, I bring them up to sort of highlight that the fellowship has not only been a success for us in our initial thinking of this will be a career accelerator for job seekers who want to break in, but also seeing that it's a valuable program for people who are already in the industry, um, you know, either as operators and employees or even as founders. Well, I, I can tell you, I met two uh, of your fellows and uh, <laughs> That's at, right. at, a, at a similar event. And they it was the same just, event. It was the same that event. Was, yeah. And they were just raving about yeah. it. And, um, uh, you know, I, I wish I had it on film and, and you should get it on film because those kinds of testimonials, it was, it was like, you know, it was, it, it was similar to how, um, a freshman year student at college, you know, would be acting, um, or, a, or a first year MBA, just like that excitement of being exposed to new ideas and meeting new interesting people and thinking about the future and thinking about their, how their career could change. Like it was, it was like lightning in a bottle. So, um, I think there's something there. Let me ask you this. What is SF climate week mm. and how is climate base involved? So in 2018, um, San Francisco hosted the uh, the Global Climate Action Summit, uh, and this was an initiative from the previous governor. Uh, there was a huge amount of capital that went into it. Uh, one of our um, our, our the, the person on our team who's like really leading the SF Climate Week initiative, um, she was meeting with someone who was heavily involved in organizing the Climate Action Summit back in 2018, and and I think we heard it was somewhere close to 100 million dollars of um, of you know direct capital, uh, but also like sponsorships and all this kind of stuff that, that went into making that event happen. So I, it was a big event, you know, Al Gore was there. It was, it was a, it's a big deal. It was more of a conference. So, you know, it wasn't like a, uh, it wasn't like a distributed event series where anyone can get involved. It was, it was definitely like a conference, something kind of similar to like, you know, what the UN does with, uh, with, with the cop, but you know, at a smaller scale, um, and much more focused on like, you know, sort of, a you know, pub public, uh, commitments and 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 thought leadership and 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 really driving action and awareness and concern around climate and um, and I, I think everyone kind of thought that that would just continue uh, that this was going to be a yearly staple that we can expect in San Francisco year over year and of, of course that didn't happen um, 
when we organized the world's first climate job fair in 2019, you know, I, I was actually expecting it to happen around the same time. We get we started planning it, thinking that the Global Climate Action Summit was going to happen around the same time. We we're going to do this event while all these other events are also happening in the Bay Area, and and that wasn't the case either. Uh, so, so, and and then, you know, the the pandemic hit, and, and all things in person basically shut down for like over two years. Um, and so the opportunity of getting people together and building in-person connections and community uh, was basically not there. You know, again, that's why we launched the fellowship because there was there was a, a fundamental lack of that. Um, and so, uh, you know, even back then, uh, you know, around the time we were launching in 2020 as a website, uh, I had already wanted to do a SF Climate Week, and I was very inspired, of course, also not not just from the Global Climate Action Summit, but you know, I, I had already attended at that point New York Climate Week. I attended that for my first year in 2019. Uh, shortly after, you know, a few months after we did the job fair before we launched as a website. So, uh, you know, what New York Climate Week has done, which for those who are listening who don't know, New York Climate Week is a uh, in, in the fall. Uh, it's like a whole it's probably I don't even know, like hundreds, many hun like hundreds of events in New York City, all happening during the same week around which coincides with the UN General Assembly. Uh, that you have a lot of world leaders in town, all these you know people in finance in town. I mean, they're they're always in town in New York, but you know, uh, you you have this like you know converging of all these really important decision makers around the world for the UN General Assembly, and so organically there started happening all you know all these climate events started happening over the past ten years, and and eventually an organization came in and said, hey, let's put a brand on this, let's call it New York Climate Week, and and that way we can elevate all the stuff that's happening and have a single calendar, so. I've, I've always wondered, like, why is it that there isn't something like this in, in the Bay Area? And that format, I think, is really beautiful and, and, and enca encapsulates, I think, what the what, how, how this work should be done. Um, it's not a conference. Uh, you know, SF, SF Climate Week is, is intended to, in some ways, replicate what New York Climate Week does. It, but it's again, it's just like New York Climate Week. It's not a conference. Uh, it is really an opportunity for anyone who wants to get involved and do an event themselves to be able to do so? We have a you know a single spread a spreadsheet. No, we have a single calendar. At, at the time of recording right now, it is not live, but it will be live in the next couple of days. So if you're listening right now, and it's before uh, April seventeenth, you can go to sfclimateweek.org and right. you'll you'll see a whole calendar of events that we we have there. Uh, and, and that model of basically you know putting a brand on this and saying, hey, this is a thing, you know, that is what enables something to then be a thing. Uh, of course, it takes a lot more than just spinning up a website and putting a brand on something. You know, we also happen to have a very large audience of users, um, but also, you know, I think what is the largest single network of climate companies and organizations that use our platform, you know, thousands of organizations now that we've been able to help with hiring. And so us putting out the word to all these organizations and saying, hey, mark your calendars, plan to do an event, you can add it to the calendar. You know, I, I think it's it's already proven to be um, something that we have the ability to do at ClimateBase. So I'm really excited. Yeah, it'll be uh, April 17th to the 23rd. Um, we expect probably somewhere between like 50 to 80 events. Um, at the time wow. of this recording, we've had now over 80 event submissions, of course, you know, hard to say how many of those will actually happen. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's gonna be a good one. And, and this is something that we are fully planning on doing year over year and building it, you know, I mean, this is our first year. 
So the fact that we already have such strong signal the first year is really encouraging, and it's going to set us up to do this even bigger and even better next year and the year after and so on. Exciting. Exciting. Yeah. I'm, I'm pumped. I'm pumped. I'm excited too. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about Evan. Mm. So, so you grew up in this area. Um, I did not, so I don't know what that was like. Um, just tell me like, what was growing up like for you? And we talked a little bit about your school and like, mm. just, just what do you think was diff? What, what was, tr what about your growing up kind of influenced you and, and can you kind of draw lines to like where you ended up today? Yeah. Um, well, uh, yeah, I'm from Berkeley. Um, I'm looking outside the window over here and, uh, that's Berkeley high school and that's where my brother went to school. Um, I did not, but, um, but, uh, yeah, uh, Jesse and I, uh, and Justin, all three of us. Um, so Jesse and I are brothers. Justin is our brother, but not part of our family. From another mother. Exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, uh, all, all three of us are from here in the Bay area, uh, East Bay to be specifically, um, to be specific. And, uh, yeah, I, I grew up um, in Berkeley and I went to school in a redwood forest uh, in this tiny, tiny community on the other side of the Oakland Hills called Canyon. Uh, so I went to Canyon Elementary. Uh, very few of your listeners will know what I'm referring to. Most most people have never heard of this place, uh, but it's a really interesting place that I spent nine years of my life from kindergarten through eighth grade. Uh, Jesse, too. It's a it's a redwood forest. Um, it's a town uh, technically with you know, its own zip code even, uh, though the only thing that exists in this town, aside from a few homes, uh, is a post office and a school, uh, like a one room post office and what is practically a three room uh, K through eight school. Uh, the entire school uh, on a given year is around 50 students. Uh, when I was there, you know, there's only about five or six students in my grade. Um, so I had this really unique upbringing, like, you know, we had during recess, we didn't go out and play, you know, on, uh, you know, like on a concrete schoolyard. Um, there was a tiny little patch of concrete that was used for a basketball hoop. But most of most of I mean, it was all dirt. And there was actually there's a stream that runs through Canyon School, like literally through not through the building, but you know, around the building, multiple bridges that go over it on, on, on the, you know, campus, I guess, you know, it's so small that even using the term like campus doesn't feel like it really captures how tiny this place is. Um, you know, I would, uh, I, I can't tell you how many forts I built. I mean, you know, at, at the time I was going to school there, I don't know if this is still the case, unfortunately, but at the time I was going to school, there was a lot of, um, you know, minnows, like little trout babies, I guess. Um, I think that's what they are. Mm -hmm. We call them minnows. Mm -hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, that like lived in the stream. I mean, you could, I could catch them with like I got really good at catching them. I probably shouldn't do that. I'm not <laughs> condoning catching fish that are endangered potentially. Um, but, you know, like, uh, yeah, it was just like a uh, kind of an unreal, uh, surreal uh, experience. I mean, fun fact about Canyon. Uh, I mean, basically, it was kind of like a hippie enclave after the 60s uh, where like uh, some people who were like really still committed to living that lifestyle. Uh, you know, there was a community of people that moved out there and populated that area. Um, there was already a school, but, you know, the you know, there was a lot more people that moved in, I would say, in the, in the early and mid 70s. Um, the Grateful Dead even played a show at Canyon School back in the day. Um, so, you know, it's a it's a different world out there. It's not it's not Palo Alto. Mm -hmm. It's like the opposite of mm -hmm. Palo Alto. It's something closer to like, you know, like 
super, super deep NorCal, yeah. you know, area, very different kind of culture even out there too. Right. So, um, yeah, that, that's, I think that had probably had a, a bit to do, uh, with kind of my own personal relationship with nature. Um, you know, we, we learned, I mean, we, just, we grew our own food. We had a, our own farm type of thing, uh, not a farm, uh, you know, like a garden, you know, garden, garden. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We grew, grew our own food and we cooked our own meals and, uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a unique experience. Um, we, we, you know, we had a mycology course. Uh, so we had this like mycologist come in and, uh, you know, and we would go and this would be, we'd spend like an hour every week or, or more. I think it was more like two or three hours, you know, like out in the, in, you know, in the redwood forest, uh, you know, picking and identifying mushrooms. Um, you know, just like, I mean, we ate chanterelle mushrooms that were growing freely in you know around the school so i mean it was it was totally totally different than i think what a lot of people experienced growing up uh, and definitely probably had a big impact sure and, and these days um at least you know raising young kids forest schools are big um, small class sizes are very big um more project-based learning Right. So it sounds like the school was like ahead of its time in a lot of different ways. I think it was ahead of its time for sure, um, but perhaps not intentionally so. I think that it's just that community, that very, very small, tight-knit community. I think it's just what they intuitively understood as being the right way to learn uh, that, you know, for children that they need, uh, they need to have access to nature uh, and mm -hmm. that if they don't, you know, they, they might be missing something. Um, but I'll also just say that, like, at the time, you know, when, when you're, like, in seventh grade or eighth grade and you only have, like, five students in your class, it's like, you know, I, I was definitely, I, I sing praises now looking back, but, like, <laughs> at, like, at, like, 11, 12, 13, I was, like, dying to get out of there. Sure. I was, like, okay, put me in a big school. I need sure. to meet people ASAP because sure. otherwise I'm going to get stuck here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I get that. And that is something that um, I have seen personally with, like, the small classroom size, um, whereas... It's it's intuitive that it would be better, mm. but then when you realize like okay these ten people or five people are my classmates for the next you know eight years it, yeah it's like sometimes you want a little bit more variety so I, I appreciate that. What about your what about your kids? Um, so we had uh, we had our son um, my our oldest son in a very progressive private school um, which had small classrooms and. It was it was really great. Um, and then, you know, and then we wanted to move out of the city. So we moved to Marin and, you know, we moved to more of a conventional mm. um, classroom environment, um, although they still have a garden and it's right. still it's 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 you know, it's more in nature. It's it's beautiful. But um, we were worried that, you know, our kids were going to have trouble adapting and they just they just slotted right in. They were yeah. fine. Right. And And like I said, it's like. The grass is always greener. Right? Yeah. You always think like, oh man. But um, sometimes, you know, there, there there are some benefits to a larger class size. There are some benefits to, you know, a more conventional approach to education sometimes. Yeah, I think, I mean, socially, certainly, I think being exposed to a lot of people is really important. Um, you know, I was really introverted in high school. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I think it was probably because I went to school for perhaps maybe a little bit too long in an environment where there was such a small, small, social scene. I mean, literally like, I mean, it was so small that they combined three classes, three grades at a time. Right. And, and you didn't actually shift, like going, you didn't have a different teacher for different subjects. 
and even the curriculum on a year to year basis, because there was three students, like sixth, seventh, and eighth, right? And three, four, third, fourth, and fifth grade all together, K, first, and second grade all together. You know, it, in a given year, you'll be learning, like as a sixth grader, you might be learning what the eighth graders need to learn. And then yeah. they would shift it to the next topic the next year. Uh, and anyway, it can be tricky. It, it can be tricky. Um, I'm curious also, like, do you talk to your kids about climate change? It's a great question. Um, and if so, like, how do you have that conversation? Um, let's take a five minute break. Cool. Apologies. Evan, great to have you here. Welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. It's, it's great to be here. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> All right. So why don't you, uh, why don't you prompt me? Again on the uh, on the kid stuff and uh, and because I thought about it and then I can I can jump into some philosophy stuff. Cool. Does that work for you? That sounds great. <clears throat> Feel free. You know, I'm curious. Um, you have kids. How how do you talk to your kids about climate change? It's a good question, Evan. Um, surprisingly, it, it's uh, they've been learning about it outside of my influence, um, even in the school environment. Mm -hmm. So my son last year when he was in kindergarten, his end of the year school play was all about ocean pollution, oh, right? So he awesome. was, you know, a fish in the ocean and, and, uh, and they were learning all about um, plastic and, and the, the, the big uh, Texas size uh, garbage pile, like in the middle of the ocean and whatnot. So I found, you know, I'm not sure if it's everywhere in the country, but I think in general, um, it's it's a major topic uh, that that kind of spans science and history and li and literature. And uh, and more recently, we have a book that we got up from the library. It's like a National Geographic, the uh, on the future, mm. and it it goes through like how are we going to power our cities? How are we going to take care of all this waste? How can we uh, think about materials and that, mm. that heal themselves and, and how do we use technology to protect the environment and protect biodiversity. So, um, it's been, it's been very organic. I mean, when, when I explain what I do to them, I try to simplify it, um, in that I, I work with inventors, right. Cool. And I, you know, I help support inventors who are creating really cool technologies and companies that are building the future. And, and sometimes it's, esoteric and boring to them, but sometimes it's, it's like, wow, like, you know, I, I can, I can, uh, simplify it and make it accessible for them. And, and they, they really enjoy it. So, um, I think the other piece to be honest with you is because just because I'm passionate about climate tech and, and climate change, um, I want them to find their own thing. Right. So I don't, I don't want to put that pressure on them of like, mm. I'm solving a big problem. Like, why aren't you? Why don't you care about it? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and that's kind of one of the tricky things about parenting, right? Is like you, you want to show, you want to introduce your kids to ideas and concepts and potential careers and, and, and hobbies and interests, but you don't want to put so much pressure on them that yeah. like, they feel like they have to do that or that if they're not good at that, or if they're not devoted to that, that they should feel bad in some way. Yeah. So so that's that's kind of how I've I've approached it. It seems like you're approaching it the right way. Um, you know, my parents uh, were always very much encouraging of me to kind of you know do whatever I'm drawn to. Um, you know, not to say that my parents you know 
raised me perfectly, um, you know, uh, although kudos to my parents, shout out to them. <laughs> I think they did a great job. Um, uh, but, you know, I, pr I probably wasn't the, the easiest kid to raise uh, at various points in my life. Um, but, you know, they, they also paired that with, you know, a lot of guidance, too. Um, if anything, more on like a, a principle, like a guidance around principles and values. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, I think your kids are fortunate to, to have a dad who who cares about things and, and has values that are, uh, I think, important to society. Well, I appreciate that. And it's it's tricky, too, because, um, you know, there's a lot of parents that that, um, you know, put a lot of pressure on their kids yeah. and uh, to either follow in their footsteps or. Um, to be good at a, a sport or a hobby or something that's important to them. And um, I'm just very conscious of that because I saw a lot of friends kind of go down, you know, weird paths and and uh, because of that kind of pressure. Mm. Um, and and I just yeah, I just feel like people have to find their own way. And it's 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 really hard, even in the best circumstances and best environment. It's hard to find your way in the world. Um, yeah. I mean, especially now with, you know, AI changing the game in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, you know, I think there are careers that as of four months ago seemed like really excellent things to pursue that I, I don't even know if people would say the same thing anymore. Um, you know, but uh, but there's a lot of when it comes to climate, at least there is a uh, an, an seemingly endless amount of work that needs to get done. So uh, if they do happen to gravitate towards a, an area that you are working in, uh, then you know, then they they may find that there's ample opportunities to carve out a climate career. Right. Maybe they'll find their first internship on climate based. I, I certainly mm -hmm. hope we are still just as relevant, uh, or if not more relevant. And uh, I mean, how old are your kids? Uh, nine. Nine. The, okay. The oldest. Got it. So yeah. okay. So like you know, maybe in like uh, you know, in a decade. Yeah, like 12, 13 years. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so we got a lot of time to make a really excellent product for your kids. Perfect. Appreciate that. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, well, well, let's let's talk a little bit more about you and, sure. and your personal philosophy. Um, is there is there a quote that that comes to your mind often, whether in times of struggle or or otherwise? Mm, a quote um, that comes. I mean, gosh. Um, um, I'm going to totally butcher uh the quote and and i don't remember who who wrote it but it's something that's been on my mind uh, a lot recently and, and so i i don't even know if it is a real quote but i I'm, I'm quite quite sure that it probably is and i'm gonna embarrass myself for not remembering where it comes from and how it was said but it's something along the lines of um you you know uh you 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 can't build a better future if you don't think it's possible. Um, I can't remember who said that. That's okay. Maybe it, maybe I should like. We can look it up. I can. I'll look it up for you. Okay. I'll, All right. Cool. What, what is it? I, I, let's let's just type in like. You uh, can't build a better future if you don't think it's possible. I think it's something like better world, something like that. Um, it's possible. I, I think well, that's it. Okay, let's see. let's find out who who because I've been saying this for a while to my team and and we were kind of going through like a a branding sort of thing, thinking about SF Climate Week and what are the values that we want to associate with our brand and uh, and and optimism was one of them. And okay, uh, and I, I referenced this sort of what I think again. I, I think it's a quote. <laughs> uh, you may have coined it. I can't really. No, find, I definitely find did not coin. Some, someone else definitely has said something like that. I did not come up with this myself. But, but what does it mean for you, like 
from a practical point of view? Like how, how have you yeah. used it? So I think like when I was first getting, dipping my toes in the climate space, thinking about it from my own career path perspective, right? Like, you know, I've, I've been, I mean, growing up in Berkeley, I, you know, I've known about climate change. I feel like, I feel like for as long as I can remember. Um, and, and the, con you know, and, and the, uh, and I would say until very recently, um, until just the past couple of years, I think most of the conversation around climate change has been focused on climate change is real. And we have to convince the world that this is a, a, a real and imminent danger and we have to take action immediately. But, but I think, you know, really starting in 2017, when Project Drawdown put out their first book publication, you know, Paul Hawken and, and all that, um, I, I think that until then, the conversation hadn't really publicly the, like the public discourse around climate hasn't really been focused yet on solutions and like what is the actual path towards addressing this challenge like and so um i think today you know in 2023 six years after uh drawdown put out their publication of you know their the roadmap to reaching the point of drawdown and all the solutions that across all these different sectors that are that we have to scale rapidly um and, and of course, you know, more recently, the IPCC reports, their latest report uh, has, has, you know, been very much focused on solutions. And, and so um, I think that with all this sort of new discussion and all, you know, all these climate tech companies and, and other, you know, clean energy companies and environmental orgs of all kinds that are now working on climate solutions. And, you know, I, I think that there is still kind of this feeling of, OK, but, you know, is that are we really going to be able to address climate change? And uh, you know, unfortunately, on Twitter and elsewhere, you're you know, I it's inevitable that you're going to come across the climate inact inactivists, the people, or, or even like the the naysayers who may not be saying that oh, it isn't real. I mean, you can certainly find people out there on the internet who still think that this is all like a big Chinese conspiracy or a liberal hoax of some sort, which is you know crazy, of course. Um, but um, you know, I think what's even more challenging in some ways to deal with is are the people who are pessimists. Um, and I, I just think like we don't have time for that. And I don't see pessimism as I mean, skepticism is important, right? Being a healthy skeptic is, is, is critical. I mean, you know, if you're a climate tech investor, your job is to be a skeptic, but you also need to be an optimist. Right. And if you're an entrepreneur working in this space, you have to be an optimist. Um, you know, I think we need optimism across the board, you know, from everyone working from advocacy to policy, um, you know, climate technology to um, you know, climate education. I, I think that we need to be talking about what is happening today in the world of climate solutions and celebrating the progress that's being made. Because, again, we're not going to be able to build a better future if we don't even believe that that future is possible. If, if, if we think it's out of our reach, then we're not going to get the critical mass and, and sort of the, the critical level of action that we need across all these different areas uh, to be able to actually reach that goal. Um, so for me, you know, um, you know, when I think back when I was first getting involved in this space, what drove me into it was definitely climate anxiety and a really deep sense of dread and fear. This feeling of also powerlessness that, you know, this is a huge challenge and it's out of my control and things are horrible and there's nothing I can do about it. Right. And 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 that mindset is what initially got me into this space. But the only reason I'm able to continue to do this work every day is because I don't, I don't, I no longer have that, uh, that way of thinking about it. Um, there's plenty of reasons to be uh, a pessimist, but that isn't, I don't find that for me at an individual level, 
um, to be particularly helpful in the same way that I don't find that mindset to be helpful when we think about, you know, at a higher level, what's happening across this whole ecosystem of, of organizations and individuals working on climate. It's actually one of the reasons why I think the climate community is so uh, vibrant and growing so rapidly and so exciting is because the community has a certain amount of optimism um, that, you know, a belief that there is a better world uh, and, and that we have the opportunity as individuals and as society to be a part of making that happen. Mm, mm, interesting. So there's kind of two different aspects of that. One is kind of the, the external, right? And dealing with, uh, dealing with pessimists and, and cynics. Mm. And um, I, I remember the same um, 10 years ago, maybe it was even more than that, 15 years ago, uh, when I first found it, started finding out and learning about this stuff, I was so excited. I, I would like go to high schools and colleges and just volunteer to like talk to people about uh, climate change and energy efficiency and things like that. And um, it, the skepticism was was there in full force yeah. for for you know. And there there was a lot of well, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my day to day? But then there was a lot of like, oh, well, climate change isn't even real, right? Mm. And that was that was like that was a major debate, like. Right. Less than ten years ago, right? Now, among the public, among the public, right? Yeah, and it's it's less so now. Like we've we've kind of turned the page on that, thankfully, for like most at least public discourse. Um, but at some point, like I also tend to believe, like you can't make everyone happy, hmm. right? You can't you can't build a product, you can't create a message that appeals to everyone, right? Hmm. So you kind of have to find those those folks who are impassioned and for the people who don't get it it's like okay like we, we've got enough people here and to your point when that community gets together it's like magic right because everyone's singing from the same songbook and trading ideas and yeah. talking about the future the second piece of what you're saying it i feel like it also is important in the context of entrepreneurship mm. in that there's a lot of you know there's a lot of negativity and people saying no and people tell, telling you you're not going to be successful. It's oh, not yeah. going to work. What's the point of this? What's a climate job? Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, um, so, so is, is that part of it for you too? And that like that, 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 um, that believing kind of, uh, helps mitigate some of like any self doubt or, yeah. or, or cynicism that you have personally. I think you have to be a little bit unreal, a little bit, you have to be the right amount which involves a little, at least, of being unreasonably confident in your ability to execute on your vision. Because if you're doubting yourself, then how the hell are you going to recruit a co-founder? And how the hell are you going to you know, raise any capital? Or, how, or more importantly, even like, how are you going to recruit a whole team? Right. Um, so, I, you know, I think like I mean, I, this is not to, you know, promote, uh, you know, un, unwarranted confidence and, or, or arrogance, right? This is not about being arrogant or about being overly com to, uh, com, uh, confident, but, but it's about having a belief in yourself that, uh, that permeates beyond what you're telling yourself and allows you to communicate a vision that others can get behind. Um, you know, I remember when I was first getting started, I mean, literally, I, I want to say like nearly all of my friends um, basically told me that, you know, in, in so many words that maybe I shouldn't be pursuing this because, you know, the idea of a climate job was really a new concept. I mean, 
sorry, I'm going to get in trouble with the climate scientists and the policy <laughs> folks. When I say the idea of a new climate job, what I mean is like the idea that uh, that a climate job does not mean like that a climate job is all the different kinds of jobs that you'll see being hired for at an organization, right? And all the different roles that that people play at all kinds of different organizations from environmental nonprofits to, you know, policy and, and research and think tank organizations to climate technology, right? Like that the idea of actually everyone has an opportunity, uh, regardless of your background and skill set, to find a way of working in climate. That was a new concept. And so I, I think, you know, I got a lot of pushback from, you know, I mean, you know, again, shout out to my parents, mom, dad, love you. Um, and they're now like our biggest advocates. But in the beginning, to be honest, like there there was some doubt because, you know, it's like how it's like what I was envisioning was something really grand and, and large and uh, and scaled out um, and really having a big impact. And, you know, for I, th I think uh, I think it's reasonable that a lot of my friends and, and family and, you know, former colleagues would would have doubt that this is something that I should spend the next many years of my life working on. Um, but I, you know, so how I got through that largely was ignoring that. And I mean, like, you know, you, you take it for what it's worth, but you're also getting advice from sometimes from people, you know, who are going the safe route. And I think taking the safe route isn't usually that safe. I mean, sometimes it is, depending on what that route is, right? Um, but it's, you know, not everything is a sure bet, right? Um, so, you know, I, I've I've always, I don't know, but I'm also kind of the person where like, I've, I've always kind of just done my own thing. And, um, you know, and I, I've, I've never really been overly concerned about if what I'm doing is what other people are doing. And so, you know, that, that's an important quality I think to have as well, so that mm -hmm. you can maintain a sense of optimism, even when people are, are telling you all the reasons why you shouldn't pursue something. Um, so yeah, you gotta, you gotta believe in yourself. Um, right. And, and when you do, I think that's the starting point from, you know, from which you can convince others that this, you know, idea is actually a good idea and that it's worth working on or worth investing in or, 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 or worth, you know, being a client of. Right. Um, so yeah. I, it's funny you should bring that up. I feel like learning to not care what other people think mm. is, is a superpower. I agree. In, in basically every facet totally. of life. And, and, uh, one quote I think about often is, um, Oh, shoot, I'm going to do the same thing. <laughs> I'm going to totally butcher it. Um, it's something to the effect of um, uh, compare. It, it's like compare, comparison is. Um, shoot, now I'm going it's, it's, it. it. to. You know it, what I'm saying, it's, right? it's comparison is the uh, is the like the enemy of joy or. or uh, yeah. Or it's like the stealer, the robber of. Yes, yes, uh, of yes. Joy. I, Yes, the thief of joy. That's what the it is. The thief of joy. There we go. See, we got Compare, that one. Yeah. We're one for two. <laughs> we don't know who said we it. We don't know who said it. Yeah. Well, you said it now. Yeah. I said it. We'll just we'll take credit Comparison for these quotes. Comparison is the thief yeah. of joy. That is that is so true. Yeah. That is so true. Yeah. Um, and uh, again, I'm just going to bring my kids again. When when my kids were little, not that I'm like they're they're perfect or anything or like whatever, but but like when my kid or, or I'm a perfect parent at all, but. When my kids were little um, and we lived in San Francisco, I would take them um, down the street uh, where we used to live in San Francisco and we'd go from store to store and we'd carol for like the, you know, the the workers and whoever was in there. Nice. And uh, and then 
my son's in uh, like kindergarten or first grade. He had to like tell a story about about uh, he had an assignment and it was like tell a story about when you were embarrassed. Mm. And he was like, "Daddy, I'm not sure I've ever really been embarrassed. What is that? What is that exactly?" And I was like, "Yes, that's what's up." Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, like obviously, obviously, getting feedback from people when. You know, I mean, that's all valuable, but I think it's just like, how much weight do you put into what someone else thinks or what someone else feels or what they say? Um, and, uh, you know, being able to distinguish between like someone's perspective that you should care about and someone's that maybe you shouldn't care so much about. Like, I, like, I personally don't think that listening to your friends for career advice is particularly valuable. I mean, maybe sometimes it is, you know, um, but I feel like usually not because you're talking to your peers and they're off on a different path than you are. Um, and I think what's much more valuable is, you know, kind of thinking about like, well, where do you really want to see yourself? What, what is your what is your thing? You know, what do you care about? Uh, or Sorry, let me let me. You know, what, what are you good at? Um, what skills do you have? Um, so, you know, what are you good at? What do you love doing? I'm, I'm totally butch. See, I'm just butchering everything today because <laughs> because, you know, the concept of Ikigai, which I think we were talking about. Yes. Earlier. In our, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, we've modified we've modified that ourselves a little bit at climate base for our own, you know, purposes. Um, well, explain what that is again, because I think you and I talked about it. But, oh, OK. But I'm not sure if we did it. Should earlier. we acknowledge in this recording that we are doing a part two of Let, the same? Take? Let's acknowledge. OK. That. Yeah. So part, so part one, <laughs> we, we got we got halfway through and then uh, and then, you know, our lovely host here wasn't feeling 100 percent. So we had to take a, a pause and we've now reconvened for part two. Different outfit, different outfit. I am even less professional looking today. <laughs> uh, and um, yeah, so uh, right. So Ikigai is this is this Japanese concept that I think in some ways has been co-opted by the Western world uh, for sort of career guidance. Um, and, and what you typically see is that, you know, Ikigai is the trans rough translation for like your reason for being um, or, or your, you know, your your reason for waking up in the morning. It, it's about finding your thing, mm -hmm. to put it in like the most basic terms possible. Um, and in a career sort of setting, you can think about it as what are what are you good at? Um, what do you like doing? Which I feel like it's usually similar, like not always, right? Like I like skateboarding, but I might not be that good at it, but like, right. Um, but for like a lot of people in, in terms of like professional skills, oftentimes those two things have some overlap. Um, so it's, yeah, so it's, what are you good at? Uh, what are you, what do you like doing? Uh, what can you get paid to do? And then critically, the fourth piece here is what does the world need? And so it, the idea is that if you can find the intersection of those four areas, you have found your ikigai. Um, and uh, yeah, and um, you know, so so we we think about this a lot. In fact, our logo at Climate Base um, is is like four concentric circles, uh, sort of overlapping, um, and uh, not fully over. Well, you, know, you can look at our logo to represent. But, but, yeah, but four. Dimensions it, exactly, exactly. Like and and um, why and why 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 are we why do we talk about this again? How do how do we get here? Kids, uh, comparison, thief of joy. Well, it's because it, it, we were talking about um, other people's influence, and isn't it interesting right. that sometimes the people who love you the most will be the the hardest to convince you should move forward with some some new thing, right? Because yeah. they want you to be safe, they yeah. want you to not take risks. In some, because they love you, right. but 
Isn't that a string? Like, it, it, I mean, but like exactly like I, I don't, you know, I think it all comes from a place of love always. Um, but it's important to not be like, OK, well, this is coming from a place of love and it's coming from someone that I admire and I think is smart and someone that has a vested interest in seeing me do well in life. So therefore, I need to listen to that person like fully. Right. Right. So like take take that for what it's worth. But you got to still think about like, well, what do you what are, what do you like doing? You know, and, and, and what are you good at? Right. Like you're going to know. Well, actually, sometimes other people will know what you're good at better than you will. But like no one's going to know what you like doing more than you. And, you know, what do you care about? Right. And what does the world need? I mean, that's a subjective. I mean, in some ways it's subjective, but there's so many issues in the world. And so being able to like have, you know, really knowing for yourself what your ikigai is, what your reason for waking up in the morning is and and, and using that framework, I think, as a, as a way of uh, navigating your not only perhaps your career path, but even your life path more broadly, um, is is a is a really powerful thing that doesn't necessarily involve getting the opinions of others about what they think you should be doing. Right? This is a subjective, a personal. This is a, about your personal path. Mm. Mm. Interesting. What, and what? Sorry, I'm just gonna. I, I just have so many questions about this. But like, what what is your view on on taking risk, and and how how one should think about when and how and under what circumstances they should take risk versus taking a safer path? Well, I believe it was uh, Thomas Jefferson that said, you only live once. Uh, no, that's not a Thomas <laughs> <laughs> Jefferson. How, how many misattributed quotes can we like, come just, up with today? Let's just throw in more. Let's just like, let's just, let's just total butcher the whole thing. Now, um, I mean, for me, like of when I think about the people I admire, I don't think any of them are people that didn't take a huge amount of risk in their life. Mm. Right. Like what, you know, my favorite artists and my favorite people in business and, and my favorite political leaders. I mean, everyone, I think, has are at least for me, are people that have done something exceptional because they took on exceptional amounts of risk. Um, now, I also kind of want to acknowledge that, like, I think sometimes our society puts too much, way too much emphasis actually on being exceptional. And like, I, you know, our whole our whole like values these days are very much around like. I mean, it's, it, you know, I was thinking to myself, I was listening to this other podcast the other day and I had this thought, it was like yesterday. And I was thinking to myself, like, you know, what true power back in the day, I felt like, I mean, the, the, the balance of like between expertise and influence and back in the day, I felt like expertise, like lent itself more to like power and being able to like, you know, have autonomy in your life. And I feel like today it's shifted almost more towards like, you're you're going to be more of an authority, even if you're not an expert, as long as you have influence, you have your audience and all that. Um, so I, I want to acknowledge, like, I don't know if that's good for the world. Right. Like, I, I think it's actually bad that we have people weighing in on like scientific issues who are like totally not scientists. Um, I mean, you know, weigh in on it, but like recognize that, like, if you're talking to an audience of, you know, 50 million people around the world that like you do have some responsibility to bear. Um, so, and I think that, again, that goes back to like something that I don't think is good, which is around like being exceptional and, and the way that we think about what being exceptional is today, I think is almost synonymous with like having influence um, and having an audience and being known. And it's a lot of it is like ego driven. And so, I, you know, as I go into answering your question, I want to just also acknowledge that like the idea of being exceptional is maybe not like super well aligned with the way I would prefer things to be today. Okay. Um, but that said, like, I think when it comes to taking risk, um, you know, you do 
have a limited amount of time. It's, it's, the, it's the one thing that money can't buy is time. Um, and with that time, uh, you know, you get to live your life. And so you might as well do uh, the, th the, the things that, you know, you, you would want to do. I think about it as, um, who is it? Is it, um, is it, is it Bill Gates who lives his life around the idea of like, um, uh, it's like about mitigating disappointment later on. See, this is another quote that we're going to mess up. Don't know this one. It's about like optimizing your life so that you're don't, so that you don't, uh, optimizing for minimal regret. Ah. Which is, it might be Bill Gates who's okay. I, again, I'm probably going to get this wrong. Okay. Um, it was it was it was Joe Joe, Joe um, uh, no um, but like that really resonates with me that concept of like I think I think I would rather you know be on my deathbed and look back at life and say well at least I tried yeah right I mean even if I didn't succeed like hey at least I took my shot because I had this tiny tiny little blip of time in the universe to do my thing and I tried to do it right I, that seems like a way better outcome than being on your deathbed and being filled with regret, like, damn, like I always wanted to do this and I and I never did because yeah. of fear, because of what people told me I sh that I shouldn't bother with it. And, oh, and it seemed like too much risk and I want to go the safe route, you know? And and again, like, you know, sometimes it, sometimes it is the right thing to go the safe route. And sometimes it is totally okay to like not want to live an exceptional life and, and to, right? But but just make sure that whatever you're doing, you're not going to feel regret about doing, right? That that right. that seems like the worst possible outcome. Right. You know, it's interesting <clears throat> if you qu query uh, folks who are retired on this subject. I think you'll get very different answers than folks when they're like mid career. Yeah, like honestly, like asking me seems like you know. No, no. I mean, I'm I, flattered, but like, no, I, what no, do I have? No, what this, do I know? This is support. <laughs> this is support. What you're saying because. What I found it's interesting is um, just folks in, in my life who are, you know, retired or recently retired, you go talk to them, you know, I would go talk to them when I was talking about starting this firm. And even for folks around that age that have had more conservative careers, more safer paths or whatnot, whatnot it almost seems universally they're like, yeah, do it, like go right. for it, like and and. You know, now's the time to do it. Take some risks and um, my start mom, that podcast. Yeah, my mom's <laughs> a great example of this actually because she awesome. um, she's an interesting case because she uh, very early on in life had a um, extraordinary gift for art. Mm. Extraordinary, mm. right? Just her her hand drawings, her her early artwork. You know, we have hanging in her house. It's, it's hanging everywhere. And, and uh, but she was influenced by, you know, her parents who were who were immigrants saying like, no, like that's no one makes money at art. Take a safe path, um, you know, go down the go, go down the route of something else you're interested in, which is teaching. Uh, she ended up uh, teaching it, it preschool special ed for like 30 years. Mm. Right. And um, which was another passion of hers. Right. Like, young, young kids and education and you know, especially. Um, kids with learning uh, challenges, but um, but now that she's retired, she's getting back into art, and she's, you know, her her skill is like just insane, and and she's kind of of that same boat in that she's like, well, you know, very happy with her career. She accomplished a lot. She touched so many lives. But at the same time, she's wondering. She she wonders. I think 
what could have been if right. I had gone down that art path. And so I'm glad to see you, Joe, taking a chance and 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 trying to build something and following your, you know, higher, let's call it a higher risk, high, higher potential satisfaction path. Yeah. Um, so it, 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 it probably depends on where those folks are in their, in yeah. their life and, and, and how they think about it. Yeah, totally. Um, I feel like I've never met anyone who regrets, uh, you know, pursuing a dream, but then again, maybe that's because like, you know, maybe I don't surround myself with like, you know, maybe my networks are not introducing me to like a bunch of people who have like utterly failed in their, in their pursuit of their vision. I mean, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, but I, but you know, I feel like it's not a linear path. It's not like you do it and then you're successful and then you get more. It's like, I feel like it's, you know, it's, you take, take a step forward, you take a step to the side, maybe even take a step back before you can take a bigger leap, you know, right. and, and, and it can, you know, it's, it's an organic process of growth that doesn't necessarily just go one direction. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, but you know, I, I'm definitely influenced uh, also by my parents. Um, you know, they went, I would say, uh, in some, I would say more conservative paths. You know, they, you know, dad worked in city government here in Berkeley. Um, my mom is a, you know, works for the state genetic disease scientist, program manager type person and, you know, le- leading the genetic disease newborn screening program. But, you know, these are, you know, there's no like, you know, if you work for the government, whether it's city, state or federal, you're, you're not going to probably become like a millionaire, you know, but like for them, at least it was kind of I, I think it was sort of going off the beaten path for them in their own careers by pursuing work that they felt like was you know, very much aligned with their values, right? Like right. that's that's why they did this work. And yeah, right. they could have gone into banking and they could have gone into, you know, like other, you know, real estate or other other career paths that could have been more lucrative. But my parents chose to do something that, you know, really resonated with them at like more of a spiritual, intellectual values level. Um, and so I'm, I'm, you know, I've always been influenced by that as well. Um, and, you know, my dad was, you know, was an orphan. And so I think for him, just getting out of that 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 system that he found himself in as a kid and, and getting into college and paying his way through college. And, you know, I mean, that in itself is going off the beaten path from where he was coming from an upstate rural, rural New York. Right. Um, you know, where a lot of his peers were not pursuing that sort of professionalism path. Right. So, I, you know, doing, you know, taking risk is always going to look different for for right. everyone. Um, Right. Uh, Everyone has different risk tolerance and and like a different spectrum of risk. Yeah. You know, in terms of and that's why, you know, sometimes when I advise, you know, college students or or graduate students, I say I say everyone's risk tolerance is different. Right. Find where yours is. Mm -hmm. Right. And I I tell people to lean towards the more risky side of what you would do. But that doesn't mean you're going to found a company. Right. Right. Like that might not be anywhere on your spectrum, right. but it might be like, okay, am I going to work for a hundred thousand person company or a 5,000 person company or right? a five that, person company? Well, that what I'm saying is like a five person company might be way outside right. their uh, risk yeah. tolerance. Right. But maybe that's like the better. Um, yeah. It's, it's like, it's spectrum it's, for that. You know, you gotta, you gotta assess where you're at in your life and, and you know, what, what is risky and what isn't risky for you. Um, you know, for me at 28, 28, 28, I think, yeah, 28. Uh, was it 28? 
Is that long ago? I'm 31. I'll be 32 in May. So three years ago. Yeah, 28, 29, somewhere around that. You know, starting Climate Base, uh, you know, I felt like it wasn't super risky because, like, I don't have a mortgage. I don't have kids. Uh, and I felt like, you know, I have this, like, sweet little window right now where I can try this out. Um, and I think timing is so important. Like, your mom is now pursuing this passion, but that's because her kids are now parents themselves. And she's not worried about you the same way that she was presumably when you were like 13. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, and she's retired. And so she has, she can actually do that now. Um, you know, I, I, my advice for younger people, especially kids coming out, I, you know, I think oftentimes in the career space, right? Like I get a lot of people who are asking me career advice, which, you know, on one hand, it's like, I'm happy to give it. On the other hand, it's like, you know, I, I, I run a, I run a hiring platform. It's not like I'm a career coach, you know, like, you know, I, I know some things about this space for sure. Um, and, and often within the climate work conversation I, with, with, with students that are thinking about, you know, okay, I'm going to graduate. What am I going to do next? And there's, I, I've heard this so many times, should I go work for a big tech company and then go to a climate startup after, or should I go just straight into a climate startup? And, you know, it's, it's a tough, it's a, it's a tough question. Like, I don't have the answer to that. I think it very much depends on your own personal level of risk tolerance and how, you know, how much guidance you need in a job and, you know, do you do really well with structure or are you more like you thrive in ambiguity? Um, and, and also like your skill sets, right? Like there are certain skill sets where, you know, you're always going to have a certain, a certain higher degree of job security than other skill sets um, where, you know, maybe getting the job is less about, you know, you know, do, do you have the functional skills, but maybe more about your ability to hustle and, and impress um, and, and, and be influential in your in the way that you communicate and sell yourself to to the company that you're interviewing with. Right. So all those factors are important. Um, but to young people in general, in case there's any young people watching this, I say, you know, go if you have the opportunity to, to jump into the thing that you really want to do, just do that, uh, because you never know, like where not doing that will take you. Next thing you know, you're on the you know, you're, you're on the straight and narrow. And it can be very hard to get off that path. Uh, you know, I, I feel like I meet people in big tech all the time, you know, been working at places like Netflix, Netflix or, or Google or Amazon. It's really hard to walk away from those golden handcuffs, right? I mean, you know, getting paid three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars a year is to walk away from that and like go to work at a startup that can only pay you, you know, less than half of that potentially. Well, not a lot of people are going to do that when presented with those options. So, you know, in, in, in some ways, I'm like. It'd be better to see people who are really talented and mission driven go straight into the area that they really care about, uh, as opposed to going this, you know, this, this more roundabout way that may never lead you back um, to that to that place you want to be. It's actually worse than that because mm. I because I I I, uh, I I give similar advice, but what what my general rule of thumb here is, <clears throat> if you want if if you know you want to do B, but you think you have to go from a go to a first to get to b mm. I, I my advice is always go as hard and fast as you can to b because mm. you might not even need to do a right like that's that's the misconception a lot of people have like oh like i need to do a before i do b a like so so first off that that's their, their first presumption this is a prerequisite to doing b the second issue is people think well i'll do a for a while and it's safer, I'll make some money, and yeah. then I'll go to B. Here's the problem. 
you might not even like B, Yeah. right? So, so to your point, it might take you forever to get over to B, which is its own problem. But the second problem is you might get to B and say, this isn't it either. Yeah. And it might be C, something I thought about a long time ago, but never even considered, mm-hmm. right? So, so I think there's, there's a lot of benefits to just going straight at whatever you're most passionate yeah. about. Because it, sometimes you find out it's, it's not exactly what you thought it was. What is your advice for people who are trying to figure out what they're passionate about? Try. Oh, well, okay. So, so two, two part. One is uh, first person research. Hmm. So I always tell people, if you have three things you, you think you might want to do, go find 10 people who are doing that thing in each category and, and have a one-on-one conversation with them about what they do, what they like about it, what they don't like about it. Mm-hmm. If you have those 30 conversations, by the end of it, I guarantee you will be able to force rank those, those three things. Mm. Now, maybe one and two are close, right? Right. So the, the natural next thing to do is, okay, I've done my research. My hypothesis is that A is, is better or B is better. I'm going to go do that for a, a little while, three years, you know, a couple of years, whatnot, what have you, to really experience it and get exposure. And if it's not what you thought, then go to the next thing. Mm-hmm. So, the, but the key, the, so, so I think most people kind of get that second step. They're like, okay, I'll try it. If I don't like it, I'll move on. But that first step is really key. Because a lot of people don't have the, the the chutzpah to actually reach out to people and say like, listen, I'm interested in this. I don't know a lot about it. Yeah. I, I just want to I want to talk to you about. It. I want to bend your ear about it. Yep. Um, what they prefer to do is they go online and they do a lot of research and they read up on things and they read articles, but that's not as good as that that human to human interaction where you can yeah. you can sit face to face to someone and you can say, that person feels that way about this industry or this function and they're a lot like me in this way Mm. right whereas i meet this other person and they're passionate about something different and but they're that doesn't feel like me right Right. it feels like they're like i thought i was interested in it but i'm actually not yeah um i had that experience oh yeah so the weirdest job i've ever done um I, i i worked in the music industry for a very very short amount of time I don't think we've ever talked about this. Maybe, maybe we have. Um, maybe but briefly, but go on. I, I, uh, yeah. So I it was basically right before I got into climate, which led me to eventually start Climate Base. Um, I was going through sort of a process of self discovery, and and it was you know I I had I had taken off some time, and I traveled, which, by the way, is also something that I, I know it's cliche, and I know it's super privileged, and not everyone can do it. But like, if you're young and you have the opportunity to take off some time from work and travel, you should do it. And it's not good for the environment. I know, I know all the critiques, <laughs> but like, it's seeing the world and 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 not having to be thinking about a job for at least a little bit of time. I think is a really wonderful way of like helping you free yourself of some of the constraints that you kind of artificially impose on yourself as a result of being in the career grind, right? Um, so so I, I wanted to do that. I did it. And I was, you know, and as I was kind of going through that experience, I had this really random but exciting offer to go to LA and work at a recording studio, uh, working for this this guy, Sam, who who had has a music label, um, uh, rap label, predominant rap and hip hop music. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's an indie label with a independent recording studio. Now that, that was his business. And he hit me up and he was like, Hey, 
I know that you mentioned to me a couple of years back that you're interested in maybe doing something in music. And I have this artist and he's going on on tour with GEZ on their European tour. And, and I have this new artist named Guapdad4000 that I need like someone to play point in LA and, and be at the studio and kind of like essentially like be his assistant more or less. Um, or, or perhaps, you know, the better way of phrasing it was I was the assistant to the manager of the artist. Um, not, I mean, like super low paying, but it paid something. And in the music industry, that's like a rarity. So I, I recognized that it was a pretty awesome opportunity. I was getting the kind of opportunity that like a lot of people would jump on. Um, you know, and I was like, okay, let's do it. And I'd never done anything like that before. And I tried that out. And I, and what, what made me want to do that was I was thinking about what do I care about? And I'm like, and I was making this, like, I think a critical mistake. I was not thinking about it from the guy kind of perspective. Um, mm. I was more just thinking like, well, what do I love? I love music. So I'm, I want to work in music. Um, and what I found in doing that job was one, um, working in the music industry is it's brutal. Um, it's living in LA and working in the music industry is also not only brutal, but it's, it's crazy. Like I, Oh my God, stories I have are, are wild. And, and a lot of like really cool stories too. Um, you know, late nights at the studio, you know, like f famous rappers showing up and recording at 4am and I mean like cool life thing, like life stories that I'll always cherish because it was just so out there and so cool to have experienced a little taste of that despite having been a total outsider to, to all of that. Um, but you know, what I also found was that like, I don't know if like, I, I love music as a consumer You know, I used to play in a band. I still have fantasies about being a rapper one day, but we'll, we can talk about that later. But, um, but like that, that wasn't enough to make me want to like dedicate my life to it, at least for me. Right. And, and for, for artists and for other people in the industry, I think it, for them, it must be enough, right. That must be their thing. Um, but I just realized, like, this wasn't really it for me. Um, it, you know, because I'm, like, going to these parties and hanging out with these artists and some celebrities. And, and like, meanwhile, in the back of my mind, like, I'm still listening to, like, you know, podcasts about, like, you know, climate change. And I'm like, man, the world is fucked. Mm. Like, are we just going to be, like, partying while the world burns? And, and so, like, you know, all due respect to all the artists out there and everyone, you know, when I work with it are incredibly talented and super amazing and really inspiring. But for me, it was just not my thing. What part of the Ikigai circles do you think was it not hitting? So I think the world needs music. So I wouldn't say it's, oh, it's not what the world, like, oh, that piece of it wasn't hitting for me, right? Like, I, I think the world needs music. And I, I personally... You know, I'm not like a hedonist, but like I do believe that the point of life is to enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying your life, you're not doing life the right way. Okay. Right. So like I, I don't think like we need to like, you know, like, you know, we you know, we we like struggle is important and, and having challenge is incredibly important and persevering through that is how you build your character. And, and that's that's where the best, you know, I think I'll probably look back on my life and the best parts I'll probably point to were the most challenging parts, right? At least that's what I hope. Um, but I think I was thinking about, maybe maybe I was thinking about Ikigai at that time. And maybe maybe that is how I landed on this. But the piece that I, when, when we take the Ikigai framework at Climate Base and we apply it to climate work, um, I, I modify the framework a little bit. And I, and I change it from, not like, I change the piece, what does the world need? I 
I help people drill into that by asking them, what are you most afraid of? Like, what are you really concerned about? Because if, you, if you're asking, what does the world need? Well, then you can find things that are really just another way of rephrasing what do you like or what do you love doing, right? Like, oh, well, the world needs, you know, skateboarding. And I love skateboarding. Great, I found my ikigai. Well, it's like, mm, maybe it needs skateboarding, but is that gonna be, is that gonna be enough to propel you and like, get, like make sure that you have like a really, really satisfying, fulfilling career for the rest of your life? I don't know. I mean, I, I think that finding a problem area that you care about, something that really freaks you out, something that's keeping you up at night, something that like, you know, when you think about like the work, the challenges going on in the world right now, if you can find a way of aligning your work and your paycheck with addressing those challenges, I think that that is where real fulfillment comes from. Because then you're no longer sitting on the sideline doing the thing that you might love doing that maybe you're also good at doing, but like secretly harboring concern about what the future is going to look like. And like, I still have a lot of concern about what the future, I have enormous concern about climate change. So it's not like I'm fully alleviated of my concern and anxieties, but I do feel like I can go to bed at night and I feel like I'm doing my part. And I think that's an important thing. And you even see it with like artists and celebrities where they make it big in a field, but then they take on their cause area, right? Like Leonardo DiCaprio with the DiCaprio Foundation, right? Like what's, you know, what, what does he do uh, that he cares about when he's not acting? He's doing documentaries about climate change. You know, and that, actually that was another thing that really like got me excited about working in climate was not Leonardo DiCaprio necessarily, <laughs> but just realizing that like, yeah, I could pursue like something in the entertainment industry maybe, you know, cause I'm, I'm interested and I'm a fan. But like what I, what I was noticing is like all these amazing artists and, and you know, you know no, noteworthy people um, in music and in entertainment and movies, you know, like they all have their causes that they care about. I mean, not all of them, but like, you know, many of them have causes that they care about. And isn't it interesting that they gravitate, you know, as their career progresses and as they get to a, perhaps a state of financial stability and they're not, less, they're not as profit and, and fame motivated as perhaps they were when they were younger, you know, well, isn't it interesting that they all end up working on these causes? And what if I just went straight to that, right? Going back to what you're saying, like, why not just start with B, right? Why not just go with the thing that, you know, uh, you 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 are you know that you're passionate about because you know you're concerned about. Mm. Mm. Does that make sure. sense? It, it does. It do, I'm trying to tie it to some another idea because I, I I went through something similar in, when I was in business school. Because one of my big hobbies is like outdoor stuff. So mm. like, you know, skiing, running, biking, swimming, right. you know, all surfing, all different sorts of stuff. And so and so like my favorite store to go into is REI. Mm. Right? I just wander around REI oh, it's, for it's hours. The best. I just love it. And so I had this like moment of questioning myself in business school. I was like, wait a second, maybe I'm supposed to like work in this like outdoor equipment or apparel mm. industry. So I went and got a, a independent project with Burton Snowboards, which Dope. was like one of my like dream companies to work for as a, as a kid, you know, teenager growing up snowboarding. Yeah. And I, I was successful. I got this project with them and I, you know, talked my way into, you know, uh, uh, an engagement and, and we ended up working with them for about a, a semester. And by the end of it, you know, it was, it was a fine project, great people there I got to work with, but I, I kind of wrapped it up and I said, you know what? I'm perfectly happy keeping the whole outdoor sport world 
in my personal life and not working on it professionally. Yep. Right. Yep. And you know, it might, it might be similar like with music. So my, 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 my point is, I wonder if there's something not only to, you know, what is, am I working on a problem? Right. But also like, is there some benefit to separating, you know, the personal and the professional somewhat? I think so. I, and, and, and I think that like, especially if the area of, of, concern you have um, or like my short answer is depending on what your interest what what the interest is that we're talking about and who you are and your your ability to take on risk and all that stuff like it, it's sometimes yes I think is the answer is that it sometimes is better to keep something as a hobby and not a job um, I remember when I was an art student in, in college uh, I was a fine art student um, painting drawing sculpture all that um, I started to feel a lot of anxiety around the idea of taking this thing that I love and making it my career, where it's it's no longer something that I do for pleasure as a way of unwinding or or even or even you know stimulating myself mentally, right? Like, uh, and and instead it becoming a task and it becoming a to do and something that I'm reliant on financially. And like I think if you can if you can figure out how to do that. Um, while maintaining a love for that thing, then that's pretty amazing. And mm. you know, I would, you know, that's why that's why I wanted to pursue music because it was one, another one of these sort of creative areas that I'm like really passionate about. And I was like, yeah, like I'm a fan, I'm a consumer. What if I were to work in this area, right? So, but you know, it, for me at least, it, it wasn't enough. And I think I may have, I, I, you know, I know people who work in the music industry, for example, who like can't. Like they don't, they don't even want to go to concerts. You know, they're, they're mm-hmm. just like, oh yeah, I'm good on that. Like yeah. I do this every day. Like I don't, I don't want to listen to music. I, right. You know, can we put on something else? Right. Right. Like, can we put on some jazz? I listen to hip hop recordings all day long. Right. <laughs> so like, you know, if, if, yeah, like I, yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. Um, sometimes for sometimes. sure. Yeah. It's personal. It's yeah. very personal. Everyone's got to find their own way through that, that maze, but, it, but it is counterintuitive to your earlier point that sometimes, you know, what you're, what you, what you're most like or, or passionate about it, that may not be the right path for you. Mm. And, and I, I do think it kind of ties to like, what does the world need somewhat mm-hmm. in that like need, need is not a binary, right? It's a right. spectrum. Right? right. And like the, the problem, the, pr- well, it's a hierarchy. Yeah. Maslow would argue. Right. Right. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say, I mean, I, I know it's personal to every person, right? Like there might be a person that says, you know what? No, the world needs like music to get people through hard times yeah. and whatnot. But um, but I think to your earlier point, I think what is universally true about uh, folks who are passionate about climate tech is that they, they share this this common deep concern about right. the future and the need and view the need as highly pressing and um, important from, you know, and important and urgent. Yeah. Urgently needing of solutions. Absolutely critical. And you can't have art and creativity and snowboarding (laughs) with in a planet that is in political and social chaos. um, And, you know, and, and there's, and there's what mass water shortages and, and you know all kinds of crazy refugee crises happening as a result of the planet being four degrees Celsius hotter, mm-hmm. right? Like, like so. Yeah, 
that's that's the conclusion I landed on is like, you know, what what's more important for the world from my perspective? Uh, is it, you know, is it for me music uh, or is it perhaps something to do with this big looming threat that I'm, you know, a, a, that is not even a, a looming threat. It is here. It's happening now that I'm really concerned about climate change. Um, and, you know, for me, for me, I'm very, very so two thoughts. One, very happy I, I got my way into climate. Super thrilled about what we're doing. Could not, I, I honestly, I think I have the coolest job in the world. I'm not going to lie. I think, I think climate base is one of the coolest companies I can imagine myself ever working for. I, I don't, I, you know, I'm, I am a business owner, but I think of myself as working for the company, right? Working for my team. Um, but I'm also really happy I did try that other thing first. Um, right. If anything, because, you know, now I know. Exactly. Now I know. And so I think when you're younger, it's like one of the advantages you have is you have more time on your side and you have, you know, if you're 20 years old, you got at least 10 years, I think personally, you got at least 10 years to figure out what your thing is. And so you might as well try a bunch of stuff. Um, and, you know, but like be strategic, you know, and what you're doing and how long you're going to let yourself try it before you decide if this is really the path for you. And I would say, you know, start off. And if, if you're someone who cares about doing work that aligns with like your values and, and your, you know, and, and what the world needs, I would encourage you to think about the Ikigai framework, really zoom in on what does that world need piece. But I would also encourage you to think about that piece of it from the perspective of what are you most concerned about? Because I, you know, again, think about my own experience. I do think the world needs music. I'm not concerned that there isn't enough music. Right. 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 So I'm not going to bed at night because I'm like, Oh, there's not enough. There's not enough good hip hop coming out. I mean, like, I'm sure there are people out there, yeah, and that is their concern. Sure, sure. And props exactly. to them, right? But it, you know, it's a subjective thing. That's just not me. It's that's, subjective. It's not what I'm thinking about when I'm going to bed. And, right. and for me, the thing that was keeping me up at night is is you know the idea of what happens when you know when it's not flooding in California. It's we have mass wildfires and there's no food and clean water to drink and like that apocalyptic future. Is, is, you know, what that was the thing that was keeping me up at night. And, and that's why I chose to pursue climate as my ikigai. What about your uh, most contrarian opinion? Contrarian opinion? Oh, man, I got a lot. But which ones am I willing to share on this? <laughs> uh, um, uh, well, um, did we ever talk about climate jobs and what is a climate job? Was that a point of discussion that we had before? No, I, I not not on camera. So, okay, so maybe you could you All can right. comment on that. All right, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy to share a thought on that. Um, I, but you know, also like starting off with like entrepreneurship thoughts. So like you know, recently we've we've seen the startup funding landscape kind of go through some craziness. I mean, you know, 2021 was ridiculous, the most frothy market in a long time. Everyone predicted that the froth was going to go away and and that you know things were going to come back down to reality, um, and obviously venture you know venture capital is highly speculative, and so there's always going to be a certain amount of froth due to that speculation, right? Like, what's the next big thing? We're going to get ahead of the curve on this, invest money, right? So, um, but here we are now, and you know, with the collapse of you know SVB and other banks and the startup funding landscape beginning to not, I don't want to say dry up. I think that's not really true at all. But like, you know, just not as like, you know, it's it's harder to get capital now than it was in 2021. Um, my advice 
as and and I'm mentioning it as a uh, I guess I'm, I'm bringing this up as like a controversial perspective. Um, is that like the only thing that's better than raising venture capital as a startup founder is not having to. And uh, you know I you know I am a big fan of founders figuring out other ways of getting the capital that they need, especially in the early days when the alternative right is is giving up a lot of your company um, at a at a at a big discount. And I feel like most of these startups I've seen fail have usually failed uh, for you know for a number of reasons, um, but almost always there there is a, a moment where a startup has raised either too much and they've hired too much and they're like bloated and therefore their burn rate is too high uh, or um, they raise just at too high of a valuation. And then you get stuck. And I think like we're now seeing this with a lot of companies that raised in 2020 and 2021, where now the froth, the frothy market is is coming back down and you know their the valuation of their company might be simply too high so now they're looking at doing bridge rounds and and you know even down rounds uh, or or they're just shuttering the company because they don't have product market fit and the investors are like hey listen you know uh, we like you we think you're really smart but like pursue something else shut this one down and they and they you know they 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 fold to that pressure and sometimes maybe that's the right call to make um, i think it would be better for the world if Founders were more scrappy, right? And you know, just figure it out. Like, I don't know. Like, make money. Like, you know, I mean, sorry, that sounds really. I should. I should no, say no, no. I mean, <laughs> that's 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 such a. But like, no, look, no, it's it, it's yeah. it's clear. I mean, it, it, can can I give it, you an example of what I mean? Yeah, please. Like, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but like, no, okay. I, I, I'm I'm worried that someone's hearing me is like, just make money. It's like, oh yeah, easier said than done. But like an example of what I mean is like, before we even had a website, we organized the world's first job fair. You know, right. I told in part one of the recording of this, <laughs> I, I share that story. So, yes, you did. so hopefully the listeners have that context. Um, and, you know, like we, you know, we use that not only as a way of testing the waters of like, is there a demand, right? Will people show up? But also like, will companies show up? But then we were also like, will companies pay for this, right? And so we actually generated about $10,000 on that first event by charging companies roughly $500 each to show up and have a table. Mm-hmm. And like, I can't tell you how important that that $10,000 were. Like that lasted a very long time for us. You know, like, I mean, months. We, we let that capital last us months. And it was also critical because it gave us the confidence that there's actually a way for us to make money. And that, yeah, we don't have any, we don't even have a web set up. We don't even have any audience, you know, I mean, after the event, we had about 700, 800 people or so on a mailing list, I think, or it was more than that. It was like a thousand people on the mailing list or so. But like, you know, that's pretty, that's practically nothing. And, and like, I think in a different world, we could have, you know, gone out, pitched an idea on the back of a napkin, gotten like given up like, you know, 15 to 20% of our company for like a tiny amount of capital and uh, started building a website. And then, you know, all these plans of launching and, and you know, we could have potentially found out that like our entire approach was wrong or, or something like that. And we would have wasted all this time working on something that didn't actually turn into anything. Um, and so I'm really happy and proud of the fact that, you know, we, we just kind of were really scrappy and uh, improving to ourselves that we can make money was really important for creating optimism in the earliest of days when there was pretty much no reason to be optimistic about this as a good business idea. Like, 
I mean, you know, aside from like my own, uh, you know, confidence that we'll figure it out, like there wasn't really other any other reason to be confident that like climate base would ever become a thing. Um, so, you know, I, I say this in response to your question, what's a controversial perspective? Because I do think that it is maybe not controversial, but I don't think it's something that most most founders are thinking about. I think the media, uh, the, the VC media sort of, you know, um, world, uh, tech media, right? It, it, the, the big headlines are like, you know, if it's not a company shutting down, it's like a company raising a lot of money. Right. And, and so the world celebrates, like, I think a lot of founders have it in their idea that to be a successful founder, you have to raise venture capital. And don't get me wrong, we've raised some venture capital and we plan on raising more, but, but like do it on your terms, you know, and, 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 and do it when the timing is right. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and mix in some other financing options too. Like we work with, uh, Enduring Planet, they're wonderful partners, super thrilled. So shout out to Enduring Planet and Dimitri and that whole team. But like, you know, they're doing non-dilutive capital. It's not something that the, it's not like a sexy thing that the media picks up on. Right. Right. Like you're not going to see a story like, oh, climate-based does deal of X amount with enduring clap. That's not a headline. That's right? like revenue-based financing. Yeah. Revenue-based right. financing. Right. 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 And of course you have to be making money in order to be able to unlock that. So it's a, you yes. know, it's, it's something you got to work towards. And if you're privileged enough to get to that place, my advice is to do that and, and to mix that into your capital stack. In fact, during SF Climate Week, uh, Enduring Planet is going to be doing a whole event in, in San Francisco uh, focused on optimizing your capital stack for climate entrepreneurs, where they're going to be talking about like, yeah, venture capital is one option, but let's also talk about all these other options. So that's, that's maybe not a controversial perspective, but. No, it is. It is. I, I would say it was, it would have been a lot more controversial um, in the 2020, 2021 timeframe, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. because you are correct that the media slash culture does reward people, at least optically with yeah. like, they raised X million, you know, a very large series seed or a very large A from this brand name investor. And um, and so that is a thing. Whereas like the company that just bootstraps its way for like three years and doesn't need to raise that capital is not going to get near any media or, or nearly as much media. Um, I think in recent, in the past year, um, this position has become much more in mm -hmm. vogue uh, just because there's less capital right. uh, floating around. Um, and most VCs are focused more on their existing portfolio and helping them survive and helping them uh, get through their high valuations that they, you know, and, and, and grow into those high valuations. Right. Um, and, but, but I think it, it kind of comes back to like one of the, the first tenants of, of building a company that is is taught almost everywhere around like the MVP, the minimum viable product. And, you know, I also tend to believe that there's every company has to find some sort of a hack to to prove out product market fit before yeah. it's really real. Right. Right. And so and oftentimes, in my view, that comes down to like coming up with a clever way to acquire customers cheaply. Yeah, because acquiring them with Google ads or or Facebook ads or whatnot, it's just, you know, it, it's just going to be too expensive. It's not an efficient way to uh, unless it's play a D2C, capital. unless it's like a D 2 C product of some sort. But even then, even it's kind even of a then, I think, I, yeah, even yeah. even then, I think you need a hack yeah. because because incumbents are always going to have more capital to spend right. in those areas. So, 
Um, so, but but I think I, I think it's worth bringing up because like yeah. mo- a lot of founders do think, okay, if I start a company, I have to raise at this cadence at this these amounts, and those are good signals so I can hire the right kind of people. Where that's that's not the only path, and it's increasingly becoming a less um, a less proven path. Right, right now, especially. Yeah, and 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 I just think it's it's good for the ecosystem in general for there to not be as much reliance on venture capital as like the go to funding source. Like that should you know if you're doing something that's scalable and you're doing hard things and you need upfront capital to work with, then VC is a great option. Um, but if you're like pre product market fit, I don't think you should be raising. Well, well, this is also really helpful in the historical context of climate tech in general, mm. right? So when I was doing climate investing 10 years ago, there was huge financing risk, right? right? And it was not easy to come by capital. A lot of the capital came from one of five mm. firms and, and corporates and family offices. And so, but the good thing to your point is it forced climate tech founders to be really scrappy mm. and- um, and resourceful yeah. and capital efficient. And so that's why I always say that the, the climate tech industry we have today is healthy and robust because of that hardship that mm-hmm. they had to go through over the last 10 years. And so, you know, w- when I talk about the IRA, you know, having all of this positive benefit, I, I, I view that strictly as a tailwind. Mm. It's like, we already have a healthy industry that doesn't need any of these benefits or, or regulations. But now that we have it, that's only going to accelerate what was already happening. Right. Right. Yep. Can I come with another hot take? Another controversial? Do okay. It. So I think there's been a lot of talk around climate jobs, which I love, obviously. Mm. Um, I've heard this phrase used and, and, and I... And I told myself I wasn't going to bring this up, <laughs> but I feel like I need to. I feel like okay, I need to. do it. Which is like every job is a climate job is a phrase that I've been hearing a lot recently. Every job is a climate job. And like, look, I think that it, the idea behind it comes from like a really good place. It's like the idea behind it, I think, as I interpret it, because I can't take it literally because I don't agree with that literal statement. But I, as I, but as I understand the meaning behind it, I think it's about the idea that everyone, that that every person, regardless of what you're doing in your normal job, has an opportunity of bringing climate action and incorporating that into your work in some ways. It could be as simple as starting a recycling program or a compost composting program at your office, uh, or or you know, trying to encourage your colleagues to you know like track the the amount of lights that you have on in rooms that are not being used or 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 in you know or or I don't you know it, it could be like all kinds of little things um and I think that's really important and I think making incorporating climate action into your work is absolutely someone that everyone something that everyone can do in various ways into varying degrees and uh and I don't think it's something that requires uh sacrifice I think it's it's there are plenty of options that are you know, and, and, and championing people doing that is really good, important stuff. But I don't think every job is a climate job. And I don't think that just because you've started a um, a composting program at your company uh, means that you can now say that you work in climate. 
Like that doesn't, to me, I, you know, that, to me, that just doesn't make sense. Um, now, every role type, every functional role type could be applied to a climate organization. And if you're a software engineer, maybe at, you know, I don't know, Amazon, and then you decide to go or, you know, let, let's see, we always talk about software engineers and marketers. So let's, let's use like HR, right? If you're, if you work in HR at a large corporate, maybe a consultancy or something like that, and you decide, hey, I want to, I want to work in climate. And so you go to climate base and you set some job alerts after you create a profile for yourself, make sure to upload your resume, um, you know, and, and eventually you find an opportunity, uh, hopefully quickly to make that transition. Then you are, then you have, then you have a climate job. Right. Like, OK, you are now working in an organization where that is the core product or service and that is the mission. And that's what that's what it's all about. Um, that's very different, I think, than claiming you have a climate job because you've incorporated some sort of climate action in, into your place of work or within your company. And so, um, you know, I say it's controversial only because there's been some like really big thought leaders out there over the past two years or so that have been like really making this a phrase. And I actually find it uh, a little bit frustrating uh, only because like, I think it's really important that we define what climate jobs are a little bit more narrowly uh, to be true to a definition that allows us to then really celebrate and champion all the amazing organizations and all the individuals at those organizations that are actually doing work in their day to day where, you know, all of their work is all about uh, you know, accelerating climate solutions or or accelerating climate action in various ways. Um, and it's not like a, a side thing. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I mean, so first off, I haven't heard that too much. Um, and I think like as we, we kind of alluded to in part one, mm. um, I think it's because, you know, we 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 travel in different circles mm. somewhat. And and whereas I think sometimes you're you're in circles where people are telling like on 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 maybe on the more environmental side of things and activism advocacy yeah yeah, yeah exactly like just like more on that side I tend to float in the circles that are more on the other side which are like yeah we want to make money and what's this climate tech stuff or like you know how how do we incorporate <laughs> ESG and sustainability but to the extent it doesn't hurt our returns right, right? right so right. so I think that that has something to do with it like super uh, super pragmatic almost <clears throat> to the point of how are we going to ever create positive change on one side of that spectrum and then on the other side like perhaps overly idealistic right 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 so i think that's one one piece of it the other piece of it is you know i've uh, when i was at a big corporate long time ago i i that that's a that is that can be an onboard to get into a climate job yeah. right to, to totally. doing these some of these things um, on the side and yep. composting programs and energy efficiency programs, making sure all the lights are off and things like that. Yep. Like that's that's something that was a thing, you know, a long time ago. It's probably still a thing. It's totally a thing. And it's really yeah. important, right? Like, it's important. I, like I, I say this. Sorry, I, I know you're trying to. Well, well I guess yeah. my just to finish my point, what <laughs> I'm saying is I think for some people that's enough. Yeah. And they're like, hey, like I'm helping out. Yeah. And I'm and if they want to call it a climate job or not, like, I don't care. Yeah. I mean, like, right. Whatever you want to call but, it. But. but the other the other piece is maybe that's a nice onboard to say, like, wow, this is like I'm really fulfilled by this. Mm. And I wish like my whole job was about. Right. You know, addressing climate change. Yep. Um, but but and then the third piece is from your perspective and, and I, I share this perspective is. If everything's a climate job, then what's a climate job? Yeah, that's and right. That's, that's the 
that's the whole thing that I've been saying. I'm just like, I'm like, wait, hold on. No, no, no. Like that, it's an inspiring catchphrase. Totally. But like, I think what's better is maybe like everyone can work in climate or like anyone can have a climate job, right? Like that's, I think even more inspiring, honestly, because like every job is a climate job. I, 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 it, it really does sound nice, but I just think it detracts from what I would describe as like real climate jobs, climate careers, people, you know, the, the, the opportunity of it being the full focus of what you're doing. Um, and, you know, it, look, and obviously I, I'm self-interested to like have a more defined definition around this because my entire company is about climate jobs. So obviously, like I'm going to have, you know, I'm going to I'm going to want to say why I don't think every job is a climate job because I'm trying to define what a climate job is as part of what we do at Climate Base. Right. Um, and again, I'm, I'm going to end my controversial statement here with, and also incorporating climate action into your place of work. Um, you know, not like, you know, even if you don't work in climate at all, right? If your company is totally not really related to climate in a direct way, well, like, Every company has an opportunity of, of doing more on this. And therefore, every person working at every company has an opportunity of incorporating climate action into or climate solutions into their place of work. And that is super, super important. It's, it's critical that we do that. Um, and let's do it without calling all of that a climate job. How can people find out more about Climate Week? How can they find more about Climate mm. Base and you? Um, yeah, well, uh, climatebase.org. Um, that that's the website. Um, uh, well, you know, to summarize, we we are a uh, you know we're the leading hiring platform in climate. Um, we are rapidly expanding. Uh, we I think you know we're kind of more recently not, not out of our choice, but I think people have sort of begun perceiving us as, as as like a climate tech job platform. But we are not just climate tech. We're climate way more broadly than that. Uh, you know, we work with some of the, I would say, some of my favorite and I would argue some of the most important climate nonprofits in the space, like Project Drawdown. I love their team, love what they do, super supported to, you know, have, have helped them attract talent before and um, and, and other and other m many other orgs out there that are not just climate tech. Um, also, uh, we, we are now expanding our audience and our, our, our user base to Europe. So if you're listening in from Europe. Uh, you, there are thousands of jobs now on climate base that are that are based in the EU and in the UK. Um, and we have a fellowship program. Um, I think I may have mentioned that earlier, but but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, climate base, we are a hiring platform, but we also recognize the really important unmet need that many people who want to work in climate or, or even are already working in climate, um, an unmet need that they have for community and education to ex help them further expand their networks, further expand their knowledge base and climate literacy. Um, and, and do so in a way that's like really powerful and transformative and working on projects and, and uh, meeting people that you would have never met otherwise uh, from all different kinds of backgrounds. You know, it's a very interdisciplinary community and educational experience. Um, and we bring in like, uh, honestly, like some of the most important uh, leaders in climate uh, and climate innovation. Um, you know, tons. Of, I mean, we've had now over 500 Founders, investor, founders and investors and thought leaders and professors request to be a speaker for our fellowship program. So um, it's it's a really fantastic program. Cohort three kicks off in May. Uh, I assume that by the time this podcast is out, that we will have potentially closed admissions. But um, but if if not, and you're intrigued, definitely head to climatebase.org/fellowship. 
uh, you can you can read all about the program. And if we're still accepting applications, and I would encourage you to apply. Um, finally, uh, we also do have a uh, one of the more popular newsletters in the space. We I want to say our total mailing list in total is pro- is it's close to a hundred thousand now. Um, uh, twice a week, we send our newsletter subscribers uh, our. We send them our newsletter. Uh, and, uh, you know, in that we cover some of the latest sort of developments and happenings within the climate space. Um, we work with an incredible writer, uh, actually a, a few writers, um, all of which are awesome. Uh, Julian writes our column, This Week in Climate. It's like a long form sort of editorial piece on sort of looking at some of the biggest news stories of the week that was. And um, so, you know, so I, I don't think we do a good enough job of really promoting our, our own content and our own sort of reporting uh, but but so I'm, I'm choosing to use this moment now to encourage people to subscribe to our newsletter. I think it's really sweet because we also always serve up the latest jobs. And then finally, SF Climate Week um, is going to be lit uh, to use the vernacular <laughs> of the youth, uh, which I still identify with. Um, but yeah, Climate Week is going to be awesome. SF Climate Week, that's April 17th to the 23rd. Um, I think we actually need to change the date slightly. We're going to start on the 16th to the 23rd because nice. uh, we're going to be doing a kickoff event on the Sunday going into that week. Um, yeah, it's sfclimateweek.org is the website. The calendar is there. There's already over 50 events that have already been added. I suspect that by the time the week finally comes around, which is in about a month from now, um, that we'll probably see somewhere between like 75 to maybe 80 events or so 75 80 85 wow. something like so it's going to be awesome uh, there's an inc- incredible lineup of organizations all the events are independently organized um, by participating organizations which include uh, a whole bunch of amazing climate tech companies consultancies investors i mean we have i just found out that Y combinator wants to do an event uh lower carbon capital chris Saka's firm they want, they want to do an event um initialized capital Ter- gary tan you know his firm they're going to be doing an event. So um, it's it's a lot of really great investors, um, some of which are climate and some of which are like looking to do more stuff in climate. And then incredible lineup of organizations that are doing stuff, community community organizations, nonprofits. Um, and, you know, we're looking forward to making this like an ongoing thing and run this year over year um, because because the Bay Area deserves to have a climate week, I think. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're humbled and excited to to be spearheading this at Climate Base. Amazing, amazing. Evan, thank you so much for coming here, not just once, but twice. My pleasure. And uh, no, it was really a joy to, yeah. to have this uh, con- this conversation. Likewise, um, happy to happy to come back. Maybe we need to start like a like a collaborative podcast where we just riff on stuff. Maybe um, so. I, I'm, we I'm could definitely we could we could definitely go a lot longer. <laughs> is Garrett is Garrett the editor? Yeah, G- Garrett, let's make that happen. Uh, <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank you, Evan. Cool. Thank you so much, Brad. All right, appreciate you.